CBC Five Live. Oh, that's it. That's the new one. I thought it was going to be bigger and shoutier than that. No, it was not very shouty. It's not. Can that's we have it again? I want to hear that again. BBC Five Live. It's got like a ray gun sound, like like it's in Star Wars. Yeah. Are you popping pills? I'm sucking a vocal zone. No. Oh, yeah. What? That's all right. Because you gave it to me. Because let's let's do this right up front. This is the Lurgy Show. It is the sickest show on radio. But isn't that apparently a good thing? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Unfortunately. Throwing some shit. People listening to the podcast can't hear you. Do- Can you do it? My child too does that and makes the click click of the hand and yeah. makes the f- clicking fingers. I cannot do that. I don't think you're supposed to be able to do it. But what I don't I don't even understand how. I mean, I got really flappy hands, but I cannot. Do, but you know, can you do it? No. Okay. Or is it just that we're old? I I think it's that we're not supposed to. There's a secret code that they have. They read specific sites and it gives them instructions about how they can snap their fingers together <laughs> really? when they throw shapes. Whatever it is that they're doing. Okay. Anyway, you look rubbish. Well, you look pants. <laughs> Good. As long as we've established the, the that. The key is we can't laugh and we can't shout. No, we have to talk very quietly. It's going to be entirely down to our engineering team to make yeah. us sound even remotely bearable. I tell you, tomorrow, when we finish the show here, first I'm going off to do a gig. I know you're doing it. One of your skiffle gigs. Yeah, but I'm not singing. I'm just playing the bass. But then first thing in the morning, I'm going to Strasbourg. Of course. To do an onstage with William Friedkin. It's, it's, Is it going to be like an analysis of Theresa May's Florence speech? I imagine it will be. But basically, because you, we're doing the talky very quietly thing, and it's, I think the thing is being simultaneously trans- translated in French. So it's going to be a very quiet masterclass with hopefully a loud, shouty French lady <laughs> explaining what we're saying. I'm already exhausted for you because, really, you should be tucked up in bed. I know. You've overbooked yourself. <laughs> I didn't know I was going to be ill. Um, what about you? You've been working all week. I know. The good lady professor, her indoors, kept saying, I heard that Simon Mayo on the radio. He sounds rough. Yeah, no, 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 that's true. But the advantage of Radio 2 is that if you feel really rough, you play some more music. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, which, also, you've got a, there's a Radio 2 button, isn't there? It's a compression button that makes everything sound basically Tommy Vance anyway. So everything, no matter no matter how it comes out of your mouth, yeah. it compresses itself. Well, within certain limits. Okay. But you don't have that on Radio 5. No. I just have this microphone cut button, which means that I can make copious use of it so that I can be speaking. That's great. And it cuts my microphone out as well. No, I don't think it should. It does, though. No. Oh, it doesn't. It's this one. that does. You keep talking. Okay. Cuts out. It cuts out as well. That's a different button altogether. Okay. But if you, the thing is, if you just do your one and then you cough, it'll be picked up on my microphones. What's the point of that? <laughs> Try it. Yeah, everyone can hear that. Well, it's either that or just be all phlegmy. All phlegmy? Yeah. Which you don't want. Anyway, on I, so I was trying to get to a motorhead joke and I just couldn't. Enough of us... Um, whinging because I'm not whinging oh i think you are look at me i'm sick well i'm sicker than you who okay of the two of us who do you honestly think is the sickest i think you are at the moment i have been but i think i'm up ticking now on my way to recovery okay what was the day that you were sickest tuesday possibly when tuesday into wednesday okay and how were your radio two shows on those days impeccable were they yeah with a lot of coughing and spluttering (laughs) and a lot of records an awful lot of discs. Did you do a lot of going to travel? No, there's a certain amount, you know, but it's fine. 
Okay. We, we muddled on through. Yeah, okay. I'm now going to tell you something which Georgia Lewis has told me. Okay. My name is Georgia, and I'm a self-designated LTL. Very good. You'll notice that throughout the programme we're speaking more softly. Yes, we're going to be speaking very When quietly. I see, I've got an email which I want to read out because it's very good, but it's very long. Okay. Come closer to the radio. <coughs> Come nice and close and cuddle up with Kermode and Mayo's film review. This summer, says Georgia, I had the most dramatic pleasure. <laughs> you see, you can't laugh. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's still funny. Of being the bride at a Witter wedding in beautiful San Francisco. Okay. I know the Witter wedding thing is somewhat unremarkable and commonplace these days, but I was wondering if the following might just be a first. Risking the scorn and derision of gathered friends and family mm-hmm. and abandoning all sense of propriety, decency and taste. Yeah. I came down the aisle Go on. to this. No. Yes. <laughs> Seriously. The DVD of the week music. <laughs> oh, no, when you started, Georgia. Could this be a first? I think so. I'd be very interested and to indeed know. indeed a last. If so, perhaps there could be a special area in the church for us, a zealot's zone <laughs> or something. I appreciate this is a big ask and fully expect to remain humbly in lawyer's loft, checking the terms of the lease and <coughs> such mundane critical tasks. Meanwhile, my beloved husband, Clay obviously a committed member of the church, remains in the USA gearing up for the big move to London and I know a cheery wass-up from your good selves will spur him on and just about make his and my day. So here she comes, look, beautiful George, here comes the bride to the DVD of the week. That's unbelievable. I think actually Simon Poole should take particular credit for this. Does he work on the show? He does, everyone knows he works on the show because I mention him every week, pretty much, because it was him who chose this as the DVD of the week music and he got it from Prisoner of... Second Avenue, is that right? Cell Block H? Prisoner not, of Second not, Avenue. Not Prisoner Cell Block H. It's James Last and his yeah. orchestra. That's fantastic. Orchestra. Are there are there photographs of Georgia coming down the aisle? No, you would have thought that she might have thought that, but no, I'm afraid not. No, she was a bit busy getting married, Simon. She had other things anyway, on Anyway, congratulations to Georgia and Clay. That's and, fantastic. Uh, all the happy memories being brought back. That is really good. Now, <clears throat> I've got one other email which I want to read. Okay. Okay. Which is, it's kind of a perspective setting email. Right. So everyone's feeling a bit rubbish. Okay. Okay, about this and that. Okay. And the other. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, not so much the other, but this and definitely that. Okay. So here is, I'm going to try and get through this. <clears throat> and I've got, I'm sucking the right um, lozenge, <laughs> whatever that is. Anyway, so I've got all the equipment here. So I'm now just going to try and read this because I think it's an interesting story. Okay. So is it, are you saying, well, I'm trying to get, is it going to be very emotional and are there going to be tears? Yes, there could be. Okay, all right, thank you. For, so, thank uh, you for warning me. Okay. Let's see how we go. Okay. From Claire Cottrow. Thank you, Claire, for the email. I'm one of the only two Wittertainees that live on the British Virgin Islands. As you may know, we were hit by Category 5 hurricane on the 6th of September. And almost everyone on the island has lost a great deal, if not everything. Our house lost its roof, and we, with our two children, two dogs and a cat, spent the hurricane huddled in one small room holding the pulsing door whilst the water rose around us. Imagine that. After 10 days of trying to save what little we had, my husband insisted that I bring the children back to the UK to stay with family because it was impossible to keep them safe and dry. The whole experience has reset my perspectives on what human beings can survive and just how strong the people of the Virgin Islands are when the chips are well and truly down. Excuse me. 
I wanted to let you know that your podcast and listening to your voices during the thunderstorms of the aftermath when water was pouring down our stairs and flooding all our possessions and we were desperately uh, sweeping water out of the door kept me sane. Your bickering voices represented sanity. Imagine that. Imagine if your only grasp on sanity is us. Uh, ironically enough, says Claire, and the world outside that hadn't suddenly turned into something that was incomprehensible. I've been listening to you since the Radio One days and somehow feel that you're my friend. So hearing your voices was incredibly comforting. Now, hearing our voices this week will be slightly less comforting. <laughs> uh, Claire says, now this morning, with a Category 5 Hurricane Maria passing our beleaguered islands and knowing that my husband and many friends who are still on the British Virgin Islands are, are in terrible danger... I'm again listening to last week's podcast, trying to regain that feeling of calm and quell the rising panic. Without vegetation, because everything is gone, the floods will be terrible. And without roofs, most are lying around on the ground. The catastrophe that has happened there will be so much worse. I'm scared for everyone and helpless here. If all the Wittertainees would keep their fingers crossed and perhaps Clergy Corner could have a chat with their boss and put in a good word for my beautiful home, we would all be very, very appreciative. So that's from Claire. Well... Well, well, I mean, so I don't know. What do Wittitainis do if when they're in the they cross their fingers or they whatever they do? They just wish you all the best and they send you. Uh, yeah, absolutely. In which in whichever send you the in, in whichever method anyone feels appropriate, send all their you know all their very best, very to, best. Yeah, to, to everyone, to everyone, and uh, particularly uh, you, Claire, and your family. And thank you very much for the email. It just seems strange to think of of us as your grasp on on reality in the outside world but anyway thank you very much for listening and we can only apologize for the fact that this week we do in fact sound like we do yeah claire in fact claire might be thinking i think i'd rather listen to the hurricane actually yeah. <laughs> rather than you two steve writes very good on a friday afternoon is that right I don't, yes well you know that's, that's really not the point i think i think the point is um is that she wants to hear from you mark no, and you. She's been listening since the days of Radio 1. The days of Radio 1 began in 1993 and ended in 1998. Is that right? It's been a long, long time. It's been a long time since we rock and rolled. Now, that and is... You, and you, what? That is a cue for a song. It is. But I'm not sure that it's going to... It might be too rocky for Robin. Because he's not a rocky he's Robin. He's not a rocky really. Robin. He's a soulful Robin. Come he's on, a, Robin. He's Come a on. disco Robin. Come on, we can definitely have... We can definitely have the, at least the opening of Rock and Roll by Led Zeppelin, can't we? He was just waiting. Oh, apparently we can. We can. Yeah. Not, do you know what that look was? What? That's the look that when you say to you, when you're off school because you're sick. Yeah. And you say, "Can I have fish, can I have chips?" Really? And you went, "No, it's not really. You should really have. Can I have chips?" Oh right. right. And that was Robin's look. It okay. Was, okay. Now normally I would say you can't have it, but frankly I can't be bothered to fight anymore because you're really really ill. No, it's it's is it you're really really ill or is it? Look, I'm I'm just accepting that you're not that ill, but that's you know. And it was my birthday, penny. so. So because of that, it's a birthday treat. It is. This is your birthday treat. Well, it's certainly instead of a card and a present. No, well, as well as a card and a present. As well? Is there going to be one? No. No, there you go. There will be. No, there will. Well, I tweeted you. That was very nice of you. Thank you so, thank you so much. All I right. tweeted you the whole of happy birthday. That counted for so much. It did. Okay. It certainly counted instead of a present. <laughs> Don't laugh. <laughs> oh, I think that's a category three. I got it. <laughs> Is there a spittoon in <laughs> Please don't do that. Okay. <coughs> okay. Are we gonna have are we gonna have rock and roll? Can I have some rock and roll just to <coughs> take the taste away? Are we just getting it? Oh, okay. <coughs> well that, that, it's like they haven't got a machine that you just go. That is the just the smallest <coughs> indicator of what <coughs> we're all up against. 
Did you hear Paul uh, Paul Greengrass's? Oh, I said Paul Gascon. Paul, <laughs> Paul Greengrass's Desert Island. No, but I hear that he played Fairport. He did. Um, what else did he do? I haven't heard. Everyone says it was brilliant. Was it brilliant? It was. And uh, we can talk about it later if you like. Did you feature in it? Why would I feature in it? Well, because you're a good friend of his. No, no, not that much of a good friend. I mean, you know, he, well, you don't like him that much. She doesn't say, so, Paul, any famous chums? Because <laughs> it might be that he starts with, I don't know, Matt Damon, for example. <laughs> yeah, you know? That's what works down for works his way through. So that. what else did he play? Are you reaching for the list? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go on. Well, actually, I've got an email about it. Okay. No, I'm going to do that later. Let's do. Okay. Let's do some. Rock on the show. Okay, let's do. Some, let's do some Led Zeppelin. Okay, here we go. While we sup some uh, herbal remedies. Here we Thank go. you. Well, that was pretty good. So we got through half a pint of licorice-infused tea. What's the thing with licorice? It's licorice and fennel tea is what okay. we got. And is, is this what you've given me? Well, I don't know. What have you got? Well, I got the thing that you gave Yeah, yeah, yeah. It says there's an instruction on the tea bag which says sing from your heart and it is organic yogi tea? Know what that means. But you, well, you mean you don't know. You gave this to me and the, the assurance this would make me better. I didn't know it would have some... It says, sing from your heart. Pathetic message uh, attached to it. Anyway, so you sip the... Anyway, that was fine. You sip your coffee, I drink my tea, and I'm sitting here thinking what will be, will be. It's getting kind of late now. We're going to stop. I wonder if you'll... Yes, stay now. Well done. Stay now, stay now. Or will you just politely say say goodbye? And from which film? So today's programme is going to be... Go on, from um, which film? Film programme. Go on, from which film does Hazel O'Connor sing that song? I don't know. About Phil Daniels? I can't remember. Or be bothered. Yes, you can. I can't. Breaking Glass. Breaking, breaking Glass. Breaking Glass. Breaking Glass. And breaking Glass. Breaking Glass, a film. No, that today's programme is complicated hasn't aged enough. well. It's complicated enough. With a Theresa May, without Theresa May, it's so complicated. Okay. So anyway, I just need to have a few minutes. In the beginning was the world. Man said, don't sing. be more light. Don't sing. Don't sing. He said, behold. Don't sing. What I have done. Don't sing. Fade him out. On with the show. Mark and I will sound probably the least healthy broadcasters you've ever heard. I thought I was bad and then I met Mark. And I sound even worse than you do. Very good. So uh, there are a number of choices, which I think... Uh, switching are, off would be one of them. Switching <laughs> off is, is one of them. Um, but just as you've been uh, hearing, just to give you some kind of indication as to the way uh, this afternoon's going to go. Yes. We're going to be here for a bit, right? Um, well, we're going to be here for two hours. Yeah, you and, I, you and I are here for two hours regardless. Right. Theresa May is going to stand up sometime in the next 10 minutes, 20 minutes, and she's going to make a very important speech. Uh, and you'll hear that live from Florence. However... If you don't want to listen to that and you still want to listen to us, we will continue on the Five Live website. So we will just carry on doing the show. And how do you listen to us on the Five Live website? You just listen to the Five Live website, bbc.co.uk slash Five Live, and then you click on Watch Now. Okay. So so it's like a choice. You either follow Florence or you can follow Google. (laughs) So you can do us and and we're on the website. And then when uh, the Prime Minister has finished talking, um, we'll come back on the radio probably around three o'clock. Yes. But to be honest, who, who knows? knows? Okay. So either which way, we're here for two hours. And if that's all too complicated, the whole the whole of just us 
will be available as usual to download as podcast. a seamless podcast. That's right. So I think everything is clear. So what? But what we're going to do is... Are we on now? I Just just to check. Yes. Okay, fine. On everything. We're actually on everything. Okay, great. Just check. Hello, everything. And the Prime Minister's not standing up yet. So um, we're going to put our Taron Edgerton and Kingsman review. So we're yes. going to do that a little bit later. Okay. So that'll be after three. So we'll do the bo- probably do the box office top ten after three. Okay. We'll probably do Taron Edgerton and talk Kingsman, the Golden Circle, after 3.30. Okay. Okay. Yes. You follow me so far? Uh, yes. Fine. And what are we going to do between now and then? Well, between now and then, an entertaining series of emails plus your film reviews. Okay, what fine. What are the films that are up for review this oh, week? Oh, well, I'm going to review In the Last Days of the City, In Between, On Body and Soul. Uh, Borg versus McEnroe, I think, is probably going to be after three. Isn't it? Who, well, who knows? who knows? You know, it could well be that if the prime minister thinks blow this for a lark, I'm not going to start until three. Yes, I just to mess everybody up. Yeah. then we will just follow her. It's lead. entirely possible. You know, so we will just. Yeah, who knows what will happen? Or she might get up and say, "Have you seen that Borg versus McEnroe?" No. Well, let me tell you what I think about it. That would be good. That would be great. That would be something else. Um, Bella Hamilton. Bella Hamilton Dale says uh, with this, "I'm a short-term listener. I was introduced." to your church by my wonderful father about eight months ago and I always look forward to Fridays due to your show. As I am 11, I was extremely nervous about your review of It as after Robbie's review of Annabelle Creation, I found myself constantly looking over my shoulder. Thankfully, nothing made my skin crawl in Mark's review, so all was well. However, and this is all Mark's fault, my younger brother, who is six, has now started saying at odd moments, Hello, Georgie. Georgie. I know it's higher, Georgie, but he says, hello, Georgie, and frankly, I don't want him to get any more accurate. <laughs> I will repeat, it is Mark's fault, although Tim Curry obviously has a part in it, that at odd moments, I jump out of my skin and f- the fear of Pennywise the Clown is right in front of me. Sorry that I bring only melancholy news, but I hope that the following recording will brighten your day as well as make you ashamed that you've scared an 11-year-old by making a 6-year-old sound like a harrowing clown. Okay, so that's from Bella, who is eleven, who is recording. being scared by a uh, brother who's six, yeah. who goes around saying this. Hello, Georgie. <laughs> now that I have to say is pretty scary. Can we do that? Can we do that again? Imagine so you're you're maybe walking along your house. It's a slightly dark outside, a yeah. little bit spooky, and then your lovely six-year-old brother, probably with a face painted like a clown, pops out in front of you and says. You're going to jump just a little bit, aren't you? That's going to be a ringtone, isn't it? I think so. <laughs> Thank you, Bella. And uh, I'm really glad that you're... Uh, that See if you can get him to go... Look. Of course, none of these films are available for either Bella or her brother. Since they're all grown-up films. Watch, because they're grown-up films. Yes. But I hope you're not too freaked out or too scared. Actually, that voice is kind of like the voice that you can do naturally now. What, Babadook? Yes, I know. I'm, I've, I've actually turned into the... Just checking for any sight of the Prime Minister. No, I can see a room that's full of uh, important journalist people who are all waiting. OK. But nothing so far. OK. The Reverend Richard Neal, who is the vicar of the Isle of Wedmore. Where's the Isle of Wedmore? It's in Somerset, but I didn't know that there was an Isle of Wedmore or that they had a vicar. So it's not, it's not actually an isle? Yeah. Is it? Well, I don't know. He's the vicar of the Isle of Wedmore. Our, our research team are even now looking at it on, on Google Maps. OK. <coughs> Do you sort of feel for a bit? But is it is it because it is like the Isle of Thanet, where one rendezvoused with Janet, um, isn't actually an isle, is it? <clears throat> You're asking me for too much information. I don't know. Okay. Anyway, the Reverend says, I don't know whether your good selves or any bad selves have followed up on your pact to see the Emoji movie together. 
But I have a suggestion that might. No, can I say we haven't? And the reason we haven't, and this is genuinely true, we both had sick notes. Yeah. Who would want to be in a cinema with us? I know. No one. I was thinking after listening to the tale last week of two-year-old Matilda, who told no dreadful lies, and her code-breaking but entirely understandable reaction to the Emoji Movie trailer by shouting no, (laughs) about the possibility of staging special Wittertainment code-breaking screenings, or SWCBS, as I'm going to call them. Where there is a film that is universally marked as terrible yes. and has effectively put up two fingers to the art of filmmaking, yes. and where there are also dutiful, code-abiding wittertainees who long to let their hair down occasionally, we could put the two together. Usually, devout mo- members of the church can stock up on industrial-sized canisters of nachos, <laughs> slurpy drinks, buy some extra rustly crisp packets, slip off their shoes and put their feet up on the seat in front, open up their smartphones, check their emails, <laughs> Twitter feed, Facebook page, delete as appropriate, and get it all out of their system, whilst at the same time, metaphorically, putting their own two fingers up at such films, because they are officially rubbish. Of course, some violations, such as drug dealing and hobbies of a more intimate nature, should still be discouraged. And, but what do you trousers think? trousers should be kept on. Yes. So let's just say you don't like... Let's say, for example, you don't like the next Michael Bay film. Okay. Is it, I don't. One, or one doesn't. Well, one... Well, everybody. Everyone. Says, everyone says it's terrible. Right. The Reverend Richard Neal, the vicar of the Isle of Wedmore, yes. is suggesting that we use that kind of film mm-hmm. to say, you know what... I can eat nachos, I can take my shoes off, and I can arrive late and use my phone. That's fine. I think a better thing to do would be to not go and see it. Um, but the, the kind of Rocky Horror participation... I mean, there are films, like, for example, Showgirls. Showgirls developed a whole second wind um, playing in uh, theatres in Los Angeles in which people would go along and join in as if they were joining in with a Rocky Horror show, or like people do when they have screenings of the... Tommy Wiseau filmed The Room here at the okay. Prince Charles. So there is there is already a precedent for going along and vocally expressing your enjoyment of a very, very bad film. Um, the, by the way, just for, for clarification, yes. Wedmore is, as you know, a village and civil parish in the county of Somerset. I didn't know Situated that. on raised ground in the Somerset levels between the River Axe and Brew. Oh, so hence the Isle. Often called the Isle of Wedmore. It forms part of the Sedgemore district. Thank you. Its facilities include a medical and dental practice, pharmacy, butchers, a village and so on. That kind of thing. And did you just know that off the top of your head? I did, actually, yes. It's like old, that scene in, in Kingsman in which Taron Egerton just knows stuff because it's being fed to him in his Earlier today, yes, and earlier a few days ago, depending on which version you heard, yes, our good friend Paul Greengrass was on Desert Islanders. He was, and um, this from Barnaby Robson uh-huh. says, "I was listening. Uh, I actually only listened because I heard you trail Mr. Greengrass's appearance, and I listened via iPlayer." Simon has suggested Mr. G's musical choices were unlikely to include any choral or symphonic music. Au contraire. See, what I hadn't thought, Barnaby, is that there are a number of ways that you do Desert Island Discs, right? One is that you choose your all-time favourite songs. Yes. Or you choose songs that are significant in your life, so songs that remind you of your parents yes. or your children. or places Danny Baker know. did entirely songs from his childhood, didn't he? So, Barn- anyway, so uh, Paul chose uh, Maurice Jarre, Overture from Lawrence of Arabia, uh, which sounded amazing. B.B. Yeah. King, How Blue Can You Get? Kathleen Ferrier's Blow the Wind Southerly, which was his mum's favourite. Okay. Um, the Beatles, Please Please Me, Fairport Convention, that's great. Meat on the ledge. Very good. Meat on the ledge. Terrific. Which always made me think, why have you put the meat on the ledge? Why did you just put it in the fridge? Bit of Mozart uh, from Die Zauberflute. Magic oh, flute. Pardon me? Magic flute. No, no, say it again in the Peter from Germany voice. Die Zauberflute. 
You're very good at that. Uh, Bruce Springsteen, If I Should Fall Behind, uh, Wait For Me, which is just beautiful. He chose the live version uh, from the Live in Dublin album. Uh, Bob Dylan's Forever Young, which he dedicated to his kids. And the luxury item was, it says here, a guitar and songbook. Oh, yeah, that's true. He did do that. And his book choice is 100 Years of Crystal Palace by Nigel Sands. (laughs) Anyway, it was very good. um, And Barnaby says... Uh, for a director who uses orchestral score so effectively in his movies and understands its power to emote, I would have expected nothing less. Very good. I must listen to it, so I presume it's available on Listen Again. It is. So, uh, for everybody who's still with us... Hello. Which is great. I have genuinely no idea who the people who have made the change. They've made this... They've thought, I know Theresa May's speech is very important, but you know what? I don't care. That makes us kind of insouciance, doesn't it? That makes us kind of carefree. Of what? Well, we're full of insouciance. That we we're just thinking. We're doing all the languages today. We know that there's an important German, speech, although it clearly hasn't started. So, oh, is it? At least they're looking at an empty podium. It's Anna's problem. She's just going to have a ch- have to chat <laughs> forever. Um, you know what we should do. We should keep dipping back into Five Live to see how it's going. We could do because this means that we're instinctively rebellious. It means that even though there's something very important happening somewhere else, yeah. we don't care. <laughs> we're going. Hey, we've got films to talk about. That's right. We've got our our herbal tea. (laughs) And (coughs) packing a capstan full strength. And here we go. (laughs) So what we should do... One arm bandit, sorry. Yeah, now what should we do? We'll do some reviews. Yes, that would be good because we are a film review show. I know only technically so, but that is one of the things that we are... But I've just realised that we, we don't have any news and sport or anything. So we're basically free to do whatever we want any, any old, old time, time. Uh, we want to be free to do what we want to do how long do you think Theresa May's going to speak for I've got no idea well, we're just well, I, mean, to... I mean she's not begun yet yes. and what, what's she speaking about she, she's speaking about Europe and, and matters okay will that be a long thing it could, it could well be she could just turn up and go you know what I would rather be at home with a good book What's that that that, that line in um in uh where we need to talk about Kevin, which was once upon a time, Mummy used to be happy, but now every day she wakes up and wishes she was in France. So I think if you are um, a listener of if you are listening via the website or watching via the website, we're very grateful for a start. Yeah, I think they, what's the what's the code phrase that they could use? What to say via email, just so that we they we know what they're doing. Um. I, I, uh, Lemsip. No, that's a trade. No, you can't do that. Okay. Um, I'm not. I don't. I'm looking at you for spontaneity. Yeah, I, but I'm not because I'm not as I'm not as well as you are. How about just sick boys? Sick boys. Okay. So sick if you boys. put sick boys as your title, we know no. that you're you're still there with us, even though the temptation of Teresa, Teresa's temptation, is. Why do you put that instead? <laughs> you know the thing is, you press that button. When you cough, yeah. like it makes a difference, but it doesn't. It does because no, it doesn't because it still comes through this one. Everyone can still hear you coughing. I know they can. Well, what else can I do? Well, I can just, cough with the microphone open, which is even worse. Why is that worse? They can hear you anyway. <coughs> it's I not, can leave the room if you like. I don't want you to leave the room. I just I don't. I don't why are you turning the microphone off? Like it makes a difference. I think you'd know if I didn't. Okay. 
Um, you're going to do a review. I, I will. I'm I'm ready to go whenever you are. Okay. Well, I might. If at any stage, by the way, yes, I leave the room. Please don't take it personally. I will take it personally. You can say don't take it personally, but I will take it personally. Why? Why would you do that? If you leave the room while I'm in the middle of a review, of course I'll take it personally. Okay. Well, tough luck. So anyway, <clears throat> so everyone knows the secret code. Okay. We're going to carry on with the normal. Are you show. planning on leaving the room? I might have to. For for what? To cough. We just cough in the room. I don't mind. Well, the listeners do. No, they don't. Review a film. No, let's take it. Well, yeah, I will do, but let's just take a vote, right? Be very quiet, right? Anyone listening, do you mind if Simon coughs? Say yes now. Yes. That was you. That's not what I was That's like the worst ventriloquist act I've ever seen. Okay. Somehow, just because we're not on the radio, but we are being streamed, means that you've gone completely mad. Okay, In the Last Days of the City. Oh, it's a review. Which is a film. Which is part documentary, part fiction, set uh, in Cairo, in the lead-up to the Terry Square uprising of 2011. Um, directed by Tamar El Said, who uses footage that he shot in Cairo in 2009, 2010, 2011. And it has um, Khalid Abdallah in it, who's in that Paul Greengrass film, and also... Features in that documentary, The Square, from 2013, which is a really, really uh, great documentary about the uprising and, it, and, it, and its aftermath. So in um, in The Last Days of the City, he plays uh, a filmmaker who is in Cairo, where his mother is now ailing. He's desperate to find a new apartment. And when we're first introduced to him, he's going from one apartment to another, and each one of them is more inappropriate than the other. And the whole thing being that he he apparently has no proper foothold in this world he's working on a film and he's constantly filming but he doesn't seem to know entirely what the film is about and how to shape it and how to film it he thinks that it's a film about the city he thinks it's a film about the world that he's living in but it's also a film about his family about his past about his friends and there's one sequence in which his editor we see him sitting in the editing suite with his editor and his editor kind of loses patience with him and says look what on earth is this film about what what you know? What's the substance of it? Which is indeed something that some members of the audience might find themselves saying whilst watching in the last days of the city. He's also trying to meet up with Layla, from who he's, he is estranged, who is this uh, person with whom he's been very close, and who is on planning and planning on on leaving. And during the course of the document of the film, which looks like a documentary but is also a drama, so it's a strange sort of mix between those two. He meets a series of friends who are also making films about being alienated from their homes from the they are filming in beirut in baghdad berlin they are now bringing their own footage to offer their own stories and what the film is generally about is it's about a kind of statelessness about a kind of homelessness it's very melancholic and sad and at times obtuse to a point that makes it i mean i said before you know you may find yourself watching it and sharing that thought that the editor has, which is, what is this about? What is, you know, what's the actual heart of it? But it actually becomes, over the course of its running time, a sort of cumulative effect that it becomes a film about, about memory and hindsight and about the way that a place is inflected by your knowledge of what's happened in it and what's going to happen in it. The director said, I told my crew we wanted to film the soul of the city, not its image. I didn't want to make a series of postcards for tourists and of course one of the great ironies of it is that the finished film which took such a long time to be put together um is basically effectively being banned now um uh, in egypt and actually can't be seen in cairo 
It's a very moody piece. And there were times, I must confess, whilst I was watching it, I found it frustrating and disorientating, but I never found it boring. I found there were times when I was watching it when I wasn't entirely sure what it was trying to get at. And yet the cumulative pieces of the mosaic did come together to become some kind of... some. I, I, somebody referred to it as... Uh, like a like a requiem for a city and it does have this sense of mourning this sense of sadness this sense of something being lost that may never be recovered it's very bold in the way in which it tells its story at its own pace and in which it, as i said it intermingles drama and documentary so much so that when i when i was about talking about it just a minute ago i said documentary rather than drama because it occupies that sort of space between the two things I think it has a fairly limited audience, but I think that for those who give it time and are and are willing to be patient with it, which which I did, I think it's very rewarding. And it's called uh, "In the Last Days of the City," um, I, which is very interesting. And I'm gonna, I might well look that one out. Thank you. Look that one up. Now I'm going to look that one out. What does that mean? Same kind of thing. Theresa May has not started yet. Really? Hasn't started. Okay, I mean, I, I can carry. I got more. No, 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 it's fine. Uh, just to reassure you that there are people out there. Uh, all these uh, emails with the subject "sick boys." Uh, Robert Prosser, Daniel Coe says Teresa isn't nearly tempting enough. Um, I can hear you anyway, says Hazel. <laughs> I'm not quite sure how. Um, uh, who's this? Um, John Taylor. I don't mind if Simon coughs. Rachel in Great Dumbo. Uh, I'm going to have to leave soon because my dogs need a walk, but I am listening. Uh, I like this from Adam Cousins. An all-time low. Now we're forced to look at you just to hear the film reviews. <laughs> <laughs> now look what you've done, Adam. Uh, Caro Morris. It was a struggle, but by clip- clicking watch, I managed to stay with you. Get better soon. It's Caroline and Cardiff. Thank you. Love the dead air, says Robin Chesterfield. Much funnier on video. I didn't know there was any dead air. No, I think they mean that, don't they? What? Well, that, that it was the- only a, no, it was just a brief pause. This is a classic show, says Stu. It is certainly gearing that way. Just how contagious are you two? This is Joe and Leek. My nose and eyes are streaming just listening. We are very contagious. Super contagious. Have you seen any of those George Romero films? It's like That's what it's like here. Or 20, 20, is it 28 days later? I was going to call it 27 days later. That's clearly the prequel. Um, Arlo White, who uh, lead football commentator for NBC Sports and formerly of this parish. Yes. Uh, says, I'm in. So he, he, thank you, Arlo. <laughs> thank you, Arlo. Uh, Gary Foster, of course I choose you. I'm voting remain with the film review, says Clive. <laughs> that's very Glenn. good. That's, Skirting that's dangerously. very well done. Close to controversy. Yeah. Robin, birdsong. Uh, Lauren Rose, I'm still listening, and I don't mind if Simon Coff's in the room. Well, now, look, you see, the thing is, I a long time ago, and five, time, five live regulars will remember, Yes, I interviewed Patrick Stewart... I think we Patrick were down Stewart from Star Trek. Patrick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we were down in Millbank, and again, I had a bit of the lurgy and I had a cough. Right. And I started to cough, and when you start to cough, you can't stop. Yeah. It's very difficult. So I walked out. Yes. So I'd asked him a question. Yeah. He's answering it. I start to cough, and I just gesture, carry on. Yeah. Walk out the room. Yeah. Have a drink of water. Come back in. He's still answering the same question. Very good, because he, he's a professional. He absolutely he's is an absolute professional. He could have said anything. Yes. He could have said, "Blow this for a game of soldiers." Yeah. I'm going to whistle. Absolutely. Uh, but he didn't. Um, so Theresa May has actually walked onto the podium now. So it's 2.28. So nail-biting the way you're giving us these updates as yeah. to where she is. Well, she's just she's just now talking about Borg McEnroe. 
Yeah. And she's giving us an update. She says, I thought it was a bit wiggy in parts. When you say wiggy, do, is that as in the old political sense of wig? No, that's well, that would be WH, wouldn't it? Yes. Yeah, no, wig. You don't pronounce the H in wig. No, but uh, no, but as in distinguishing from when I would say a bit wiggy, I mean a bit hairy. Oh, I see. I see what you're saying. Just because there's, there's. I mean, we'll get, we'll review the film later on, but there, there is a moment in it in which um, Shia LaBeouf's John McEnroe does look like he just walked out of a hair bear bunch. So basically, we have to time our material now with Teresa's, but we don't know, Prime Minister, so we don't know how long she's going to talk. I love the fact that you're on first name terms. Well, I just, you know, Mrs May, or whatever you want to call her. No. Um, This is a point which is going to be brought up in the interview later with Taryn Edgerton. Okay. And I do mention this to him, but Rory Horn in London and a number of other people. Yes. So with this week's release of Kingsman, The Golden Circle, I feel it must be the perfect time to revisit the Mark Strong butt game. Yes. Both because of Mr. Strong's supporting role, but also the outrageous use of ands and withs on the film's poster. There's loads of them. I'm writing to you, uh, stood on the platform of Chiswick Park Station, looking up at said poster. Taron Edgerton, Colin Firth, Julianne Moore, Halle Berry, Mark Strong all fine and fair, but then with Elton John and Channing Tatum and Jeff Bridges. Two ands. Is this allowed? Surely the rule should be that if you're going to include two ands, one of them needs to be a but. Yes. Is Channing Tatum worthy of an and? Mark will likely say yes. Either way, plenty of food for thought. Can I just say that, that, that if, if with Elton John is on the poster, that puts pay to the question which I had was, is it a plot spoiler to say that Elton John... No, it actually it definitely is, it, is on a, there. OK, well. that's fine. In that case, it's not a plot spoiler. Um, incidentally, has the role of uh, a film's director in the MSBG ever been discussed? I raised this only because I yesterday attended a screening of Mother. Yes. And feel it could have benefited from a poster with the following billing. Jennifer Lawrence, Javier Bardem, Michelle Pfeiffer, Ed Harris, with Donald Gleeson and Kirsten Wing, but, but Darren, Darren Aronofsky. Anyway, I'd love some answers. Yeah, I'd like to say you're completely wrong about that, incidentally. There was a... I'm sorry? Why? Because the, the, Darren, it's not about Darren. Darren Aronofsky. Oh, this is an email from Rory Hall. No, not your. I'm talking to oh, Rory. It? All right. Okay. I'm talking directly. I know that I'm. I'm. It's like it is probably the it's most like the intercession thing. I can only speak to the audience via you in the same way that okay. you know we, communication with upstairs can only go through the ministry. But so I was responding directly to what Rory was saying. Donald Gleeson is going to be on the show talking about his because uh, he's A.A. Milne in Goodbye Christopher Robin, which I'm really looking forward so to. The trailer up. for it looks lovely. Have you seen it? I have seen. Can it. you give me just a Heads up? Well, I think so. Yes. Yeah. And? I loved it. Oh, good. I'm so pleased. I'm really, really pleased. Uh, and they're on... Uh, so Donal is on next week with Margot Robbie. OK. Um, two incredibly talented actors. I mean, really, really first class. Yeah. Uh, and they were completely delightful. And I think the film manages to be, you know, the beautiful Winnie the Pooh film that you want it to be. Yeah. It's not a children's film. Um, but it manages to, manages to be about something. And yeah. it's uh, moving and... And profound. I'm really looking forward to it. It's a project that Steve Christian was very, very proud of. Remind us who Steve, Steve Christian. Christian was. Um, uh, basically, one of the guys who effectively created the Isle of Man film industry, and has the most extraordinary uh, list of films that he, you know, brought into existence. I was at the Isle of Man Film Festival a couple of weeks ago, and we did a tribute to Steve Christian. It's just the most amazing list of films, and and, that, and Goodbye Christopher Robin was a particular sort of you know passion project of his. So I'm so I'm just I haven't seen. Well, it I th- yet. well yeah, I mean, my impression my, for what it's worth, I thought it was beautifully done, and um, and Donal is is first class. Yet again, right. and Margot Robbie, and Kelly MacDonald, and the kid who plays uh, Christopher Robin yeah. is extraordinary. So yeah. anyway, we can talk about that next week. 
And we'll do some more Darren Aronofsky Great. Uh, with him. So um, Another review? Well, I think so. I think uh, the Prime Minister's still sort of going strong. So right, let's fine. see what we've got. So in, in between. Um, now, In Between is a really interesting film, In Between Barbara Ha. So it's directed by uh, Mosaloon Hamoud, who won a prize at Cannes just recently. Um, the story is of three Palestinian women living in Tel Aviv. One of them is a free-spirited lawyer who drinks and smokes with the best of them and takes great pleasure in sort of uh, breaking what you would think of as the, the, the generic codes of her profession and her gender. Another is a DJ who's holding down a, uh, a day job working in kitchens and bars and whose strict Christian family don't know that she's gay, which is something that she's kept from them. They are joined by a, a third person who is... Um, a devout Muslim and is engaged to a very sort of sanctimonious, very, very devout fiancé who disapproves of the flatmates and immediately thinks that the flatmates are going to be a bad influence and wants to move the marriage forward in order to, you know, to get his intended away from these bad influences. And when you meet the characters initially, they seem like they're, they're very different. But what happens during the course of the drama is that you come to see that the issues that they're facing are very, very similar. The lawyer has is involved in a sort of whirlwind romance with this man that she's met who appears to be very worldly, very liberal, very, very open-minded, appears to be absolutely sort of tailor-made for her, but becomes weirdly chippy and critical of her clothing and her smoking and her manner whenever his family are around. Um, the DJ has found love uh, in the arms of a young doctor, but is unable to tell her parents that she's uh, in a same-sex relationship. And in fact, her parents are absolutely determined to marry her off to somebody uh, and, you know, fiercely determined that that's what they're going to do. As for Noor, who is uh, engaged to this uh, very devout and very upstanding, apparently, man, she discovers in a frankly horrifying scene, exactly what is expected of somebody in her position, a scene which is all the more horrifying for the fact that it's handled with such discretion by the director. As the title in between suggests, the portrait is of people living in a sort of liminal world between two things, between a certain amount of freedom and a certain amount of repression, between a religious society and a secular society, between in the greater scheme of things, the past and the future. And um, I thought the film was a real, real delight and a treat. When it won its award in Cannes, Isabelle Huppert, who presented the director with the award, and I think it was the um, uh, Women's Young Talent Award, said that the women that are portrayed in this film are the true heroines of our age. And I think she's absolutely right. What each one of them is doing is dealing with the day-to-day problems that their uh, that their society presents them with in ways that are very very different and yet during the course of the drama we come to see them bonding and pulling together and finding common cause it's also a drama which doesn't pretend to find easy solutions it has one of the most enigmatic final shots in a movie that i've seen since the graduate you know the the, very, the final shot oh, of the wow. graduate really yeah, yeah really like that or even um the final shot of The Long Good Friday. I mean, something yeah. which is really, really deliberately uh, enigmatic and haunting and suggests so much without completely stating, you know, what it is. It has a terrific soundtrack, which brings together the idea that on the one hand, there's this kind of partying lifestyle going on in a sort of slightly underground scene. 
But on the other hand, that's also happening in a society in which structures are very, very clearly laid down and rules and regulations are followed by families, by authorities, by, um, you know, by employers, by employees. Um, the other thing that I really like about it is how many different places it draws its influences from. I read a terrific interview with the director in Sight and Sound magazine in which she said that she was influenced by Ken Loach and uh, Almodovar. I can see the Almodovar, definitely. I, I think there's a comparison to be made between in between and uh, Almodovar's early film, Pepe Luchibom, which I like very much, although it's completely out of control and anarchic and very tonally different to this. But then she also said, and of course there's Quentin Tarantino, in, there's a sort of a revenge narrative which starts to happen about half the way through. And I was just very surprised to hear her cite that as, a, as an example. It's a film in which you really believe in the characters, you really believe in their situations. They're lively and vibrant and totally engaging. And it's a film which thrums with life, thrums with the possibility of life and also an understanding of the of the strictures of life. It's called In Between, and I would recommend anybody to go and see it because I thought it was really terrific. Um, I, just listening to you is... I, I was sorry, is it wearing you? No, 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 not at all. I'm just feeling really sorry for you. Oh, I'm sorry, thank you. Um, That's a first. Well, it, not really. <laughs> when have you felt sorry for me? Well, before? most weeks. Okay, fine. Read a couple of emails. Uh, Sick I'll, boy. I'll do that. Do you need to? Do you, can I get you anything? No, I'm doing good. Are you going? I thought I sounded all right, actually. Yeah. Oh, everyone feels sorry for me. Okay, right. Go on. Do a couple of emails. Uh, I'll do another. Film. Okay. Well, why don't we do TV movie of the week? Because everything is all about face here. Okay. So we're going to do. Uh, it's all about face. Yeah, I know you said all about. I thought everything is all about face. What does that mean? Eyes without a face. That was quite a good tune. I quite like that. Billy movie. Idol. So we're going to do box office top ten later we're going to do Taron Egerton later we're going to do Kingsman you know, later you know, Taron Egerton should work in a film with Tarantino do you think we should be Darren Aaron and Sharon Aronofsky working together with Taron and Tarantino TV movie of the week uh, this in case you don't know is uh, basically we post the best films on subscription free television on our Facebook page every Wednesday and when we say the best films we mean the best films as chosen by Jamie or Simon Poole that week Devon says, uh, not sure what Mark's going to go for, as he's picked Grand Budapest Hotel before, yep. maybe more than once, possibly the Poseidon Adventure. I'd personally choose the last picture show every time. It's a beautifully wistful movie full of wonderful performances and sumptuous black and white cinematography that palpably aches for lost youth, as indeed do we all. Um, so either that or Fletch for me. Carol Osborne Buettens, Grand Budapest Hotel, if only to see how the very specific screen ratios are dealt with by the broadcaster. Yes. Very niche, Carol. But Grand Budapest is on Channel 4, so they'll probably be respectful of it. That, and what would that, how will we know? Well, because if the frame doesn't keep changing size, then they're not being... Because the whole point about Grand Budapest is it, it has three different screen ratios for three different time periods. And you think the television will cope with that? Yeah, well, I mean, most people's TVs are 16 by 9 now. Dan Rowley, I can't imagine a week where Mark would ever choose Enter the Dragon, but it's my choice. So Why? Enter, Enter the, the Dragon. Dragon was the first X-rated film I ever saw. Daniel Phillips, although I'm yet to see any of these, I'll go for The Last Picture Show, followed by Boys in the Hood, followed by Enter the Dragon. Craig Dunphy, I'll be too scared to watch Wes Craven's classic The Hills Have Eyes, with the brilliant Michael Berryman it's as a Blue great film. <clears throat> I watched this when I was only 11. Oh, OK, well, that's not so great. And it still haunts me. Which it would. I mean, if you saw it when you were 18, it would still haunt you. 
And John McBrain, the last picture show, surely it's a standout classic on the list by a country mile. What is our TV movie of the week? For entirely personal reasons, I'm going to go for The Poseidon Adventure. Um, and the reason for that is I made a documentary some time ago um, about disaster movies that was talking about, you know, Owen Allen and all that sort of thing. And The Poseidon Adventure was shot on the, uh, is it the Queen Mary? Whichever ship, ship it is that's now docked permanently uh, up by Long Beach. And, uh, and we went on the ship and we were walking around it. And I was, and I remembered how much the first time, you see, I was, when I was young, I used to really, really love those Owen Allen films. And I really, really liked The Poseidon Adventure the first time around. Then there was a remake of it that was just called Poseidon, wasn't it? Which was, you know, had, had half the charm. And The Poseidon Adventure is one of those movies that absolutely fulfills all the kind of cliche roles about disaster movies and how things work out. And it's got some terrific performances. Gene Hackman is absolutely great railing at the world, you know, railing at the heavens. So it's a, a, a Poseidon Adventure because I think it still stands up after all these years and it's really good. When is that on? It is on 10 to 5 in the afternoon on Saturday on Film 4. I'm going to look that one out. Up. And up. Angela Blair is in Glasgow. I am moved to contact you after having a screaming match at you both, but especially Mark. Why? What have I done? In the car this week. Oh dear, OK. Clapperboard and screen test were not much the same thing. Okay. Clapperboard on ITV, presented by the peerless Chris Kelly, yes. was a movie review show that just happened to be for kids, which took a thoughtful, insightful approach to as wide a range of cinema as anything with an A or U certificate in the 70s would allow. Yeah. It also featured location reports, usually of the latest Roger Moore James Bond film, as I recall, but the reviews always made a point of crediting directors, pointing out what professionals like cinematographers and editors actually brought to the film and was an ideal first starting point for junior film buffs like myself. Screen Test, on the other hand, was just top of the form with Disney clips based on (laughs) moronic basic observation of a scene from the latest releases. Although Michael Rodd, who presented it, was admittedly quite dishy. If you wanted quality film quizzing on the BBC, you had to look for Film Buff of the Year quiz presented by Robin Ray, which to this day I regret being about 20 years too young to enter. Also, I quite enjoyed Mother, but I felt a bit like a checklist of scenes from Roman Polanski's 60s output with a dash of Lindsay Anderson. There is a lot of Polanski in it. Oh, the Lindsay Anderson, that's, that's interesting. You're the first person I've heard make that comparison and actually it's not that's that's a very smart comparison because there are definitely things about mother that have some of the cumulative chaotic feel of oh lucky man and i hadn't thought of that at all um regard the clapperboard um screen testing yes you're absolutely right it was um you know it was unforgivable that i conflated the two of them i think i'm sure she's forgiven she yeah, I think so. Anyway, I thought it was it's worth pointing out, and thank you, Angela, for the email. Yes, thank you very much. So um, the PM is still PMing in Florence. Yes. Thank you, by the way, to everyone who's who's watching on the webcam and is partaking and looking at a couple of really sick broadcasters in the that makes, modern sense. It does make it sense, a couple of really sick broadcasters. Yeah. yeah, how was the show? Really sick. Really oh, sick. So the kids, that's really good. Um, so how many more films have you got to review, by the way, just out of interest? Well, I've got a load more, but I mean... Fine, I can, you, you know, carry on then. Is that all right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Take okay. as long as you like. I did um, uh, a show at the BFI on Monday, and we had on the director of a film called uh, On Body and Soul. 
Ildiko and Yedi. And one of the things that I did was I, I asked her to describe what the film was about. And as she was describing, I'd seen it already, but it was, it's quite hard to describe. And she was sort of trying to describe it. And I said to the audience, I'm going to have such fun explaining to Simon Mayo what this film is about on Friday. And Gales, Gales of laughter around the room. So, OK. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm glad to have been a part of your show. Yes, or the nub of its joke. Um so Ildiko and Yeti won the camera door for her first feature in 1989. And this new film on Body and Soul won the top prize uh, at Berlin, The Golden Bear. It is basically a strange and ethereal love story set against the backdrop of an abattoir, which doesn't make it sound immediately like something that you want to rush out and see. Andre is a manager uh, at the abattoir who keeps his emotions close to his chest in an early scene He's interviewing a new recruit and he asks if if the new recruit feels sorry for the animals and the new recruit says, no, I don't feel like anything at all. And he says, well, in that case, you probably don't want to work here. It's just, it's not going to work out. Enter Maria, who is a quality control manager who has been sent to monitor the hygiene at the plant. She's very, very private. She's completely removed from all sort of social interaction. She seems to show very little emotion and doesn't appear to understand how the normal vagaries of just, you know, human uh, tittle-tattle and conversation work. Her work is just the same. It's completely methodical. She starts labelling all the beef that they are producing as mid-range rather than superior because she says, well, the cattle are slightly too fat. And somebody says, well, how can you tell the cattle are slightly too fat? She says, well, I I can see. It's it's like a millimetre of extra fat that they shouldn't have. He says, well, you you can tell that. She says, yes, I can tell that. It also turns out that she can remember every single conversation that she's had in order. So she has some kind of, you know, uh, obsessive attention to detail, but apparently almost no natural sense of how to connect with people. In fact, almost a, a sort of pathological fear of connecting with people. So these two characters working in an environment which is, you know, hostile and unrelenting, I mean, because of the nature of what it is. And yet, somehow they start to form a relationship. And the relationship is based on the fact that they realise that they're having the same dreams. They're both having a dream about a frozen forest in which there are two deer, a stag and a doe, is it? And they have the same dream about them coming down through the trees, finding a stream and drinking water from the stream. And as they're drinking water, their noses touch and they understand that these animals are deeply bonded. And they suddenly start to realise that they're having the same dream, different perspectives on the same dream, different you know characters on it. But somehow this relationship is happening through their dream states. And I asked Ilda Cohen-Yeti, I said, what do you think the film is about? And she said, well, the way she would describe it, that it's a shy love story. She says it's a love story about people who are sort of pathologically shy, but are finding some kind of connection through some completely left field form of you know uh, almost like an astral plane connection i also asked her whether she was a vegetarian because the film is set in, in an abattoir and certainly although the film is discreet about the act of actually killing animals it's set in an abattoir so there's a lot of carcasses there's a lot of meat there's a lot of stuff which if you are vegetarian you're going to find alarming she said i'm not a vegetarian but i eat very very little meat but i wanted the backdrop of this to exist because what i wanted was it was to not ignore it. I wanted to be about the fact that this is this is something which is going on. And 
she was contrasting on the one hand the dream state story of the deer who were running free in the forest and are uh, you know in this kind of almost idyllic environment with what's happening with these other animals who whether you like it or not this is happening and if you're not a vegetarian if you're a carnivore this is leading to how the food gets onto your plate i was thinking as well of um simon amstel and that film that he made carnage for for the bbc iplayer which i thought was a terrific piece of work and um my feeling about the film was this when i was watching it at first i thought okay it's, it's a film which is set in an abattoir and i'm going to find this difficult but i did think that she handled the material sensitively I also thought that the dawning love story was very, very engaging. And the way in which the film played off these two different worlds, the harsh, stark, brutal cruelty of one with this sort of ethereal, imaginative dream state of the other, something which is absolutely uh, heightened by both the cinematography and also the sound design, the way in which the sound design juxtaposed these two different worlds. And... During the course of the movie, despite the fact that it has some stuff in it that is that is alarming and some stuff in it that is quite uh, you know causes you to you know to, to step back, you find your way into these characters and you find your way into this growing relationship and you find your way into this strange, almost fable-like world. I really I like the film very very much. Um, I've seen it a couple of times now because, as I said, I, I interviewed the director uh, on stage who I found charming and, and, and witty and engaging. And um, and I, the second time round with the film, when I knew where it was going, it was kind of useful because I, I found it easier to get into it. But it's a really unusual piece of work, sort of surreal and fantastical, but also very down-to-earth and oddly touching, despite the subject and the environment that it, that it deals with. Uh, Jane Klein, who's in Didcot. Yes. BA History and Politics from Warwick University, but never a resident of Tossel. Yes. Which is probably just as well, Jane. Um, I saw On Body and Soul at the BFI preview screening on Monday. Um, It's now Friday, and I can't get this film out of my head. The cinematography is excellent. The camera looks at its protagonist, an an austerely beautiful forest landscape, of a dead cow with the same cool but ultimately sympathetic eye. I am haunted. Sympathetic. Can I just say that that's a word I wish I'd used in my review and thank you for putting it in that email. That's exactly the word, sympathetic. Thank you. I am haunted by a shot of Maria's face unbalanced by a swinging glass door. The soundscape is unobtrusive but involving. For all its technical accomplishment, though, it was the emotion of this film that really got to me. It's essentially a very simple love story, but one between two very complicated people, with the barest hint of magic in its realism to allow our two shy and difficult protagonists to come together. Uh, Geza Morshanyi is mesmerising as André, is it André? Yes. Uh, A charming and engaging man who is nevertheless living a lonely life. His relationship's deliberately shallow. How great to have a disabled protagonist who's uh, disability is totally incidental to the story. Absolutely. But the real heart of the film is Alexandra Morbelli's Maria. Her idiosyncratic quest to get her body and soul connected up so she can pursue the romance she wants so badly is by turns sweet, hilarious and heartbreaking. I rooted for her every inch of the way. I laughed at least six times, teared up once and three times emitted a high-pitched oh. <laughs> an entirely new cinema-going noise for me. I don't know whether it's supposed to sound like a dove, but anyway... <laughs> 
I suppose this film won't be for everyone, but I encourage people to take a chance on it. It really is something special. I'm really glad you felt that way about it, and that was a that's a that was a lovely analysis of it, and particularly the word sympathetic, which was a, a, actually is the key word really. So we're going to do the box office te- top ten quite shortly. Okay. Okay. Um, Mick Game on this email, sick boys. It appears that you can send bugs via the internet. I'm getting a sore throat just listening to you. I'm sorry. Uh, Toby Jones, but not that one, is still listening and still watching. Uh, Kate Hannant, I'm still here. Just wanted to say I've been re-listening to your old podcast to help me get through the back-to-school commute. I'm a teacher, so it's really bad. (laughs) And coincidentally, yesterday I was listening to a 2013 podcast where Simon was really poorly, but with a rather lovely whispering Bob Harrisy voice. Yeah. And Mark was being extremely kind about it. So, Simon, assuming as it sounds that Mark is more ill than you, this time please do it be extra nice to him. (laughs) I'm not quite sure. I think we're just both equally poorly. Ill. (laughs) Uh, James Nutsford. James in Nutsford, I beg your pardon. James Nutsford in Nutsford. <laughs> James Nutsford in Thorburn. Uh, you're entertaining me whilst I write a report on the redevelopment of maggot farms. What? I'd like to know if is there anyone else who is engaged in a more specific industry... Than the redevelopment of maggot farms. What, what do you make of the way maggot farms have been redeveloped recently? Because I've been slightly disconcerted by some of the modern developments. It's quite hard. To, I mean, how do you redevelop a maggot farm? <coughs> you just redevelop oh, a maggot farm. Thank you. But also, what is a maggot farm? It's a farm for maggots. Is it like, is it like a farm that maggots <laughs> play on? Like they go and you know they feed the. It's like where maggot. I th- <laughs> yeah, I think it's where maggots go for a good day out, <laughs> and a walk and a walk through the fields. <laughs> it's a very bucolic maggot. <coughs> there you go. This is very good. I'm going to read one more email, and then we can do a box office top ten. Just going to I check that to means with editorial talking. approving. Is that all right? One more email, and then a top ten. Can I just ask? Is then there's not going to be any news? At the no time. news. No toilet trips. <laughs> nothing. It's just us it's forever. Like being in it's like radio hell. It's like what? It's like being in Birmingham when I couldn't get to the loo for the whole show because they didn't hadn't given me a pass to come back into the thing, and you thought it was hilarious to pour water into a paper cup. It, it, when it was. <laughs> yeah, I really laughed about it. Claire Derwin. <clears throat> Thanks, Claire Derwin, for this. I am mum to Jonah, 12, and Barney, 12 months. OK. Congratulations, incidentally. An MTL, grade six French horn. Having been until very recently a regular attendee of parent and baby screenings at Quad, our fabulous local arts centre in Derby, I felt compelled to write in to big up these fantastic events. As a film lover who doesn't get many chances to make it down to the pictures of an evening, these Cinebabies screenings have been a wonderful opportunity for me to see films that are a bit more grown up. With an upper age limit for the babies of 12 months, I think it is assumed that before this age they are not really taking in much of the content itself. So they will show 15 and sometimes 18 certificate films. Including Mother, apparently. The volume is turned down to protect little ears, although they don't tend to show the really shooty-shooty bang-bang movies. <laughs> and the light's kept up so that we can see to feed, change, uh, wipe snot, pick up thrown toys, and so on. The first film we went to see was Swiss Army Man, which I will delight in telling Barney about when he's older. Farting Corpse movie. Um, oh, is that, that one? The Farting Corpse movie, yeah. I remember you telling us about that. Uh, but we've also enjoyed La La Land, Personal Shopper, Hidden Figures and The United Kingdom, to name but a few. My personal favourite, though, was Prevenge, a screening that was not as well attended as usual, but the ones who did go saw the funny side. I think the most memorable screening 
was Hitchcock's Lifeboat. A great film, but a film in which a baby drowns within the first ten minutes. I love that Quad's choice of films is so eclectic, but I'd be interested to hear of a stranger film choice for a parent and baby screening. Well, you'd think Mother is definitely out there, uh, but Lifeboat is certainly one. Anyway, Barney turned one on Tuesday, so I now have to content myself with Minions, Smurfs and Pixar. There are worse things. Only 14 years till we can rewatch the Daniel Radcliffe as a corpse movie. <laughs> I just say that Nigel John Short, who is therefore listening, has confirmed Queen Mary at Long Beach. That's what Poseidon... That is actually it. Yeah, Queen Mary at Long Beach. OK, so I'm now going to find the box office top ten, which is here somewhere. Here we go. Are you ready for this? Well, I'm as ready as I'm ever going to be. I'm just going to have a sup of tea. A sup of tea? Oh, can I do that as well? Well, it helps. Oh, we've got a higher quality tea bag, I think. Well, I, I've got, I'm, I'm, I'm drinking... Well, the... got a message, but this is a better quality tea bag. Better quality licorice and fennel. Okay, so the one that I've got now says tea pigs. Yeah, you just mentioned the trademark, so anyway, that's, the, that's what they're called. Is that... Yeah, anyway, we'll move on. There other are teas other... are available yes. and are, are, are equally... Equally good for your, for a sore throat. It's like we're not on air anymore, isn't it, really? Yeah. Box, no, at number 10, it's Despicable Me 3. Which you, which now you can go and see after, since the child has turned one, you can go and see that, and there are many, many worse things than you could do than go and see Despicable Me 3. Uh, Wind, I love the Despicable Me films. Wind River is at number nine. The interesting thing about Wind River is that it has divided people between those who think that the... The fact that it's dealing with the the backdrop, with the life on the reservation, with the hardships of uh, the indigenous community is a good thing. And those who have a problem with the fact that the narrative itself essentially follows, you know, white male hero as the sort of, you know, the avenging angel character. I think that when you compare it to Sicario and uh, Hell or High Water, you can see very much uh, what the writer-director of... um, uh, Wind River means about them being a trilogy of films about American borders. I st- I, I do think Hell or High Water is, is the better film, and I think Sicario is, is absolutely brilliant, but I did like Wind River with certain reservations, which are that, you know, the narrative itself is the least interesting part of it. The most interesting part of it is its portrayal of what the writer-director quite rightly describes as people having to live on land upon which no one was ever intended to live. Anna Garvey, seated in Veterinarian's Vestibule, says, I enjoyed Wind River mostly for the gorgeous cinematography and for what I found to be a quietly affecting murder mystery. However, the idea of a film that touches on the plight of women from Native American reservations being forgotten by society is important and I'm sure much needed. So if this film was written as a comment on these women being overlooked, why on earth was it written from the point of view yeah. of the men involved? Yeah, so Why were the Native American women in the film not given a voice? Why did it have to revolve around the father's experience of losing a daughter? Does this not reinforce the idea that women are important because they are someone's mother, someone's wife, someone's relative, and not because they're important as their own entity? And, of course, why was the hero of the piece a white male, yeah. which I mean, we mentioned I, in previous weeks. Yes, I do agree. I think, it, I think it is a shortcoming of the film, which is why I say that I think that the least interesting part of it is the narrative. The most interesting part of it is the background. And Anna rounds off by saying, I really don't think this is a bleeding-heart liberal whining. No, I don't think it is either. I think it's a perfectly legitimate criticism, particularly since the writer-director has made such a point of... I mean, the film ends with this declaration that, uh, that no statistics exist for um you know for 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 such uh, murders um such deaths and so i think he 
absolutely puts forward that you need to be looking at that as a central issue. And if it's completely legitimate, therefore, to ask why the form of the film yeah. doesn't centralise it. And as complete sentences, I really don't oh. think this is bleeding heart liberal whining. If the film states <clears throat> it was made to highlight women being treated as second-class citizens, then criticism is invited if it then sure. uses them in the exact same. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree. And I think it's a perfectly valid criticism. I don't think there's anything bleeding heart about it at all. Uh, Dunkirk's at number eight. Well, somebody, <coughs> somebody sent me a, a message on Twitter which said... I just went to see Dunkirk. It really isn't that good. And you demean great films by saying that it is. Really? And I thought, yeah, I thought and, and he, and in exactly the, 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 the tone of voice that you just used, that was exactly I, what I, I think it's certainly up there as what, uh, my favourite film of the year, possibly. I think it is a really great piece of cinema. There. Sorry. Seven. There we go. Uh, seven is American Made. Which is not a really great piece of American cinema. Um, you know, it's it's a bit of it's a bit of nonsensical fluff. But it's you know, it did what it did and now it's going away. Another film with Donald Gleason in it. He's in everything pretty yeah, much. Yeah, but but here's the interesting thing about Donald Gleason. Donald Gleason is rapidly becoming you know what Americans have this terrible phrase that they refer to character actors. By which they mean actors, yes, people exactly who fulfil right. different roles. Donald Gleeson can be in three different movies. He's like George Mackay. He can be in three different movies. You can see them in the same week and you wouldn't know it was the same guy. Correct. Because he's unbelievably versatile. Uh, so American Made at seven. And you can hear Donald Gleeson, as we mentioned, uh, on the show next week with uh, Maggie Robbie. Margot Robbie. Jungle Bunch at six. Yeah, I mean, I think it's purely because everyone's seen every other kid's movie that's out except for the Emoji movie, which is still in there. Um, Jungle Bunch is a, uh, a, a a French production that apparently was a big hit on television. Uh, there was a TV movie of it before. And I, I did spend a lot of the movie trying to think, hang about a minute. Okay, so the painted penguin has been adopted by the tiger and he's carrying around a fish in a bowl and they're trying to stop the jungle being destroyed by a koala bear who has explosive mushrooms. Really? really? Oh, right. <laughs> exactly. Really? Uh, so, uh, Jungle Munch at six, the Emoji movie is at five. Uh, you and I had made an agreement that we were going to go and see it and together. We, got sick. we both shied off, but we both got sick notes. We David Neal in Manchester with the Emoji movie still in the top ten uh, and you both threatening to go and see it. I felt as though I had to defend it. I took my 10-year-old godson, okay. Ronnie, to watch it, and it was his number one pick from the movies on offer. Apparently, he hasn't been keeping up with the reviews. I feared the worst, but I can report this slots firmly into the not-bad category. Okay, well, It's you... no inside-out, but I can't understand where all the hate and one-star reviews have come from. Okay, well, the high-five character gets a few laughs, the meh parents are good for comedy value, and the scenes inside Instagram, the dancing game, and the virus pirate bar are all cleverly done. Going by the majority of the reviews out there, you would think this is a crime against cinema, but I have seen much worse. It's a perfectly good fodder to keep the kids entertained. And Patrick Stewart plays a poo, is that right? He is the voice of the poo emoji. The aforementioned Patrick Stewart, who, yes. who can voice pretty much anything. <laughs> he can, even when you're having to leave the room. <coughs> so, um... Emoji Movie is at number five. American Assassin is at number four. Yeah. I mean, American Assassin is based on one of a series of books, which I'm pretty convinced we're not going to see many more of the books coming to the screen. It is, I mean, it's total nonsense. Um, it's sort of gung-ho, retro, throwback nonsense. We were saying before that it looks like a Chuck Norris film or a Charles Bronson film, but without Chuck Norris or Chuck Bronson in it. Um, and it's also 
considering how completely knuckleheaded it is, very, very dull. The only person who appears to be having any fun in it at all is Michael Keaton, because I imagine he's being paid a huge amount of money to watch it, uh, to, to, to be in it. Uh, I wasn't paid a huge amount of money to watch it. I wish I had been. It's, it's rubbish. It is rubbish. So what was your email about... Jordan in Southampton, after the shocking opening of American Assassin, the film never really seemed to get going. It felt like a muddled mess, and despite some good action scenes, really it wasn't anything memorable. I didn't find it as offensively patriotic as others have accused it of being. However, about 15 minutes before the end, I shocked my fellow audience by laughing at what to them would have been a strange moment. This is the moment when one... And this might be a spoiler. One of the CIA agents utters the famous words, "'Who's driving that boat?' And that's why I laughed. I apologise to my fellow audience members. <laughs> yeah. uh, it's course. not a spoiler, but I laughed at that too. Mother is at number three. Mother! So, uh, well, okay, where do you want to begin? Shall I go first or shall you go first? You can go first. Okay. Mother is a Darren Aronofsky film that works on a number of different levels. You can read it as a, a story about uh, somebody's paranoia, um, that they are, you know, that they are being misunderstood by their partner. You can read it as a story about the way in which uh, older men or creative men feed upon younger women. You can use it as you can think about it as a story about the invasion of privacy, or indeed a home invasion movie. You can think about it as uh, Darren Aronofsky and indeed uh, Jennifer Lawrence described it as a film about um, the despoiling of Mother Earth. Or you can read it as a biblical parable. And all of those things are apparent pretty much from the outset. And uh, and it's really up to you how much, you know, which which way one chooses to read it. When I first saw it, I was completely sideswiped by it. And I found it very, like a very, very intense, I mean, impressively intense a cinematic experience that just seemed to completely escalate and continue to escalate in a way which became quite, you know, overwhelming. And I very specifically said, okay, I need to set, I need to let it settle. I need to think about it uh, afterwards and give it a few days to settle down. And every day that I've got further away from the experience of seeing it, it's become a better movie in my head. I didn't, you know, um, it, that doesn't surprise me because it is something which I think is rich and satirical and, you know, ghoulish comedy and uh, ridiculous and exasperating and all those other things that you would expect from somebody who made Noah and uh, and made Black Swan. You've got uh, some of the worst responses from audiences. Okay, so the story is that there was this this uh, you know cinema place where they did it in which it got an F response. Okay, and they said, "Oh, audiences are turning away." Well, firstly. The audience that they're asking those questions of are not a Darren Aronofsky audience. They are a Jennifer Lawrence audience. Well, the people who paid to see the movie seems. They to be are enough. people who had paid to see the movie. They, I don't think the people paid to see a Darren Aronofsky film. I think they paid. How to can see you tell? Because the way in which they responded to it, if they were Darren Aronofsky fans, they would not have given it an F. Also, in that list of other films which have had Fs, are films like. William Friedkin's Bug. Well, I'm sorry. Anybody who thinks Bug is an F is an idiot. Okay? Bug is a really, really, really good film. And I understand how it can get under people's skin, but there is a there's a fantastic stage play which is brilliantly brought, brought to the screen with uh, some of the most exciting direction of a movie. I mean, I remember when Bug first played at, um, at Cannes, Jonathan Romney bounced up to me on the croisette and said, have you seen... Uh, William Freakin's bug and I said no he said you are going to love it in a way which meant 
everyone else hates it. But actually, no, everyone else didn't hate it. No, a lot of other people really got it. There are great movies that have been received as F. It's, uh, there was a very, very intelligent article by Peter Bradshaw in The Guardian who argued, I think, very convincingly that the problem that was being experienced with, uh, with Mother was that if it starred somebody other than Jennifer Lawrence... It wouldn't be, you know, it wouldn't be necessarily attracting an audience who are expecting something very different to what Darren Aronofsky is serving up. But I think that, I know, I mean, I, the fact that it got an F rating from some viewers, sorry, what do they know? Mother, a small M, exclamation mark, is at number three. Which has proved, I think, the most divisive film we've ever reviewed here as far as listeners yeah. are concerned. Um, and if I was... As far as you and me are concerned, because you hate it. I'm very, very happy never to see it again. That's yeah. certainly true. Robin Berry says, uh, a beautifully crafted, stunningly shot, impeccably acted, finely edited, load of old tosh. Yes, I can see that coming. Here's an art house horror movie that's crept into the multiplex and is no doubt disappointing popcorn audiences across the globe. It was a brilliant trailer, though, with a fantastic frenetic pace, amazing sound and edited to within an inch of its life. And like the first half of the film, was very unnerving. Audiences were bound to flock. The screen I was in was full of popcorn munching, the conjuring loving horror fans, <laughs> most expecting something haunting, gory, and as delightful as Black Swan. Sadly, they got a villainless story about a house with a heartbeat and one of those writers with writer's block and pathetically sympathetic wives. <laughs> You could ask, what does it all mean? But written in three days, it really felt like it. Rushed and all a bit pointless. So who really cares? The good doctor mentioned he could feel the person next to him hated it. Yes. For me, it was the entire auditorium. Yeah. You could feel it in the air, confirmed by the audible groan at the predictable end twist. I'm with Simon. I hated it. That's one example. Yes. No, and I, I do understand instantly that, that it, a good... A goodly proportion of the audience hate it. And I wonder if Robin's onto something there, but the way the trailer was presented yeah. did make it look like I never, a tradition, like see, I didn't really see, fantastic, I a didn't wonderful see the trailer. And, a, you know, and an exciting, slightly more trad horror film. So, is the, so did, the trailer does play it as a horror movie, does it? That's what it, that's what it feels. Is, okay, because I hadn't seen the trailer, so... Um, Natasha Mellon. I went to see Mother last night with my friend after listening to Simon's interview with Darren Aronofsky. I remember Simon mentioning if anyone left the screening for five minutes during the film, they'd be thoroughly confused. Yes. I think that was Darren, actually, who said that. You it know, was. He's right. You absolutely don't want to be doing any of that at all. My friend, unfortunately, suffers from sleep apnea. Okay, which is? Just fall asleep all the time. Okay, yeah, right. Uh, this makes her very tired and very prone to falling asleep. Anywhere. So this is what happened last night. Halfway through, I noticed she'd nodded off and started to snore. Now, in a big, noisy superhero blockbuster, this wouldn't be a problem. But this was a quiet and tense film. Trying to prevent code infringement, I nudged her ever so often to wake her up. At the end, I asked her if she liked the film. She said it was good, but she couldn't understand why it was called Mother. I asked her what was the last scene she remembered, and she said it was the scene with the brothers fighting. I tried to explain what happened after this, and I went through all the different bits with the thing, and then the, the all those other thing. people doing the thing, and then that thing, the really upsetting bit, <laughs> and then that. She said, I think you're taking the mick. She could not believe that that's <laughs> what happened after the setup that she'd seen. Wow. P.S. Like Simon, I wouldn't watch the film again. I think the message of it was men always survive. Oh. Uh, women are muses to be used. They give everything until they're destroyed. They're replaceable and ultimately forgotten. Michelle Pfeiffer and Jennifer Lawrence were very good. It was somewhat ridiculous and silly. I would only recommend it as it a, is somewhat as ridiculous a, and as silly. A challenge. It, although I'm not, I'm not necessarily sure that that's a criticism. I think it is disgraceful, and I mean that 
it as a positive. Ian Schultz says mother is a surrealist tour de force. It starts off as a is it John? I never always, I always pronounce this differently into my head. John, how it comes out. Cassavetes. John Cassavetes. Yeah. Yes, it is right. As it starts off as a John Cassavetes film and quickly morphs into a Polanski Bunuel Gilliam hybrid. Get you saying Bunuel. <coughs> I haven't been this stunned and in awe of a film since Under the Skin. Very good, thank you. Ian. Just one more. Um. Lucy Sanderson, in all the time I've been listening to the show, never did I think that my first piece of correspondence would be in reaction to a film like Mother. But perhaps even more surprising is that I've a right in defence of it. I'm sure there'll be plenty of input about the actual content of the film, so I'd like to offer a couple of points of praise for this understandably divisive sense of meaning, which has a kind of bravery and perspective, however warped, that I think is meant to be admired. Firstly, the marketing. I like, I'm sure... All who watched the trailer saw and expected a textbook Hollywood horror. Screechy music, screaming heroines, nightmarish scenes. But it turned out that the actual film was most certainly not a horror in the typical sense. Much like we've seen with films like Get Out and Detroit, it's become clear that the idea of horror has many interpretations. Yes, always has done. But I, 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 again, I'm brought back to this thing that I didn't see the trailer, so I, I didn't go in expecting it to be a horror film. Anyway, she concludes, um, Mother has had me thinking for days, picking apart each intense chapter for new little nuggets to chew over, which means it definitely made an impression. Very good, very good. And number two is Victoria and Abdul. So last week on the show we had um, Eddie Izzard and uh, Dame Judi Dench talking about Victoria and Abdul. I mean, I think I feel the same way about it that, that you do. I think it's 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 sweet and light and there is a, there is an important story underneath it which is this story about an unlikely friendship between the head of the Church of England and um, and somebody who becomes her closest uh, confidant, who is a Muslim, although from the beginning of the film she thinks he's, she just refers to everyone as Hindus. As the Hindus, yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, there's been some uh, sort of uh, controversy about whether or not what the film is doing is, uh, you know, is, is whitewashing uh, the, you know, the true story. Oh, I mean, the fact of the matter is that in the film, Victoria comes across as fantastically open-minded, and certainly that appears to be at odds with uh, some of the uh, historical accounts, if not all of them. But I think there's a thing at the beginning of the film that says, this is true mostly. And you, I, you, I think you take it on faith that what it is, is it's inspired by a true story. And incidentally, that phrase inspired by true events comes up at the beginning of Borg McEnroe. But there is a huge amount of dramatic license involved in it. There are some things which it doesn't do, like there are moments in which you think the character of uh, the Munchie, as uh, Victoria calls him, is going to be sort of investigated further. And the film doesn't really do that. Um, I think there are a couple of great performances in it. I think Adil Akhtar is terrific and is, is really, really great as the sidekick who doesn't want to be there, who didn't intend to get dragged into all this and who gives the film a sense of comedy and pathos and, when it's needed, of broiling anger. Uh, Darren Barker. I'd heard some mixed reviews, wasn't expecting much, but was delighted by the whole thing. It's not a deep, complex history lesson, but a wonderful... No, it isn't, no. ...sprightly jaunt. There is a light touch to the whole thing. Though things do turn a shade darker towards the end, it does seem to sprint to the finish. The two leads were exceptional. Ali Fuzzle, because that's how... That's right. Uh, that's Eddie how it is. I point Judy was fuzzle, yes. I had such an easy grace about him, he was instantly likeable. Dame Judy was, well, she was Dame Judy, always on top form. Her performance was hypnotic at times. The close-ups on her face were remarkable. She didn't have to say anything. The whole story was right there in her face and expressions. It goes to show... 
not just this film, but good movies as a whole, provide a certain degree of comfort and a slice of respite from the world. Um, and Timothy Neal, I appreciate I'm not the audience for this as a 23-year-old male. However, I have seen a bunch of these grey pound type films as a result of my unlimited card. I went and saw this having no idea what the general critical consensus was. It has moments of charm and humour, but also feels painfully calculated for the exact audience who, according to my screening, completely lapped it up. Uh, the box office number one, by some considerable measure, is by six times more than Victorian Apple, <laughs> is It. Which I think has now become, I don't know whether this is adjusted, but it's now become the biggest selling horror movie of all time. I read a news story that said it had outsold the you know the gross of The Exorcist, although obviously I, I don't think that's taken into account inflation adjustment. They never do, do they? But it, it makes it it makes for, it makes for a very good yeah, headline. But also, it means that every year you're going to get the biggest something because of the way that inflation works. Um, I think it is actually really good. I think the key to it, if the problem with Mother was people went into Mother expecting a horror film, that may similarly be an issue with it. That you have to understand that it is a horror adventure. It is much closer to the Goonies and Poltergeist than it is even to the to the first, you know, TV miniseries of it. Which, oddly enough, if you go back and watch it again, Tim Curry is brilliant in it, but it's a it's a little bit sort of wobbly. I think the the reason that um, the, the Andy Muschietti film works now is because he has such affection for the central characters. I think the kids are great. I think they're really really good. I think that um, when uh, Skarsgård does that Pennywise, uh, you know, performance. He brings something new to the table, which is pretty impressive considering how comprehensively Tim Curry covered that character. And there are moments of fear, but it's much more of an adventure, much more of a romp, much more of a kind of stand by me with darker edges. Uh, Lawrence in Norwich, I'm 17, and on Friday evening, me and seven friends walked into a packed cinema to see It. Usually I don't like horror films due to the fact that most have no definable plot and feature disposable and forgettable characters. Well, uh, you can argue with him later. Okay. Therefore, I struggled to engage with the film and become scared, but this was exceptional. The film succeeded in scaring the group of us, and by the sounds of it, the whole cinema, through lingering on disturbing images being exacerbated by an intense score. What I loved about this film was how it was an entertaining story with lots of laughs along the way and three-dimensional characters who I enjoyed being in the company of. This made it more right, surprising... Sorry, sorry, can I just do... Of whom I joy, enjoyed being in the company. Sorry. I'm sorry. That doesn't sound right. So I'm sticking... Ending a sentence with a, proposi- with a preposition is something up with which I shall not put. You know that you've had an editor of one of your books who said, it's okay. So, enough. This made it more surprising. The ideal mix of story and horror made this the best experience I've had in the cinema. And a film that's wow. made me more optimistic about the genre. P.S. Mark, your impression was brilliant, but really scary <laughs> when you're biking down a country lane. Yeah, but not that scary once you've heard... What was the name of... We had a, we had a six-year-old saying Hello Georgie earlier. And that was scarier. Hello Georgie! Just one more. Rudy. Yes, it's a message from Rudy. My name's Rudy. I'm 14. I went to see It. Isn't it a 15? It's a 15, yeah. So he shouldn't, anyway. I went to see it, um, this week, or as we're calling it, Even Stranger Things, uh, this weekend with high hopes after viewing promising trailers and to hopefully bring an end to my dad's awful comic routine, which goes like this. Um, I'm going to see it. What? It. You know, it. And so on. Dad's humour, which can unfortunately go on for hours. Anyway, I really enjoyed the film. Skarsgård's sadistic Pennywise was chilling and creepy. The young cast gave great performances uh, and are easy to empathise with. The cinematography is excellent, genuine tension, despite using some typical horror tropes. I felt the jump scares were correctly used. 
and Simon might have his way through this. The, that particular scene, yes, he, hmm, petrified the viewer behind me. Good kind of horror film and a lot better than the recent trash hitting cinemas. Uh, four out of five as far as I'm concerned. Really, thank you very much. Can I just so, tell you the entertaining thing that happened in the... Um, on the way to the... No, on cinema. the show that I did at the South Bank on Monday. Simran Hans, who's a brilliant uh, film journalist, was on. I was getting her to... Uh, I was asking her about uh, films that are playing at the London Film Festival and she was doing her pick. And I said, inc- incidentally, Mother is out this week. What did you think of it? And she said, well, I thought it was very Spielbergian... And uh, I thought the kids were really, really great. And I you know, thought there was a lot of, you know, laughs in it. And she, which, what she thought I said was, Mother is out this week. What did you think of it? <laughs> which is perfectly understandable. It's perfectly understandable. Because it actually works, makes sense. I know. And I was sort of sitting there thinking, Spielbergian? I think Mother's a lot of things, but that's not the word I would have gone for. So it is still the box office uh, number one this week. So because of Theresa May's speech, we've rejigged things slightly. Going to do Borg McEnroe now, and then Taron Egerton is our guest. You'll hear him after the three thirty news, and Mark will review Golden Circle, uh, Kingsman, Golden Circle. Yeah. So Borg McEnroe, Borg versus Borg v- versus McEnroe, yeah. I think it is now. Um, there's a quote at the beginning, the Andre Andre Agassi quote about every match is a life in miniature. The long version. It's no accident. I think tennis uses the language of life. Advantage, service, fault, break, love. The basic elements of tennis are those of everyday existence because every match is a life in miniature. And that is kind of the mantra of the film. Now, bear in mind, I know nothing about sport. I know nothing about uh, tennis. I know nothing about the Borg-McEnroe rivalry. And consequently, I watched this film not knowing the end. Okay, fair So I was basically the same as Wendy Lloyd seeing um, in Apollo 13 and not knowing whether they got back. Um, so also bear in mind, I'm watching it from the point of view of somebody who can't tell you whether it's factually correct or whatever it is, because all I know is the stuff that was going on and the television in the ether in the background. Okay, so 1980 Wimbledon final, Borg is chasing his fifth consecutive win, McEnroe his first. And the film does that thing about attempting to create a grand rivalry in the f- form of you know documentaries like Senna and um, the uh, the Ron Howard film Rush, you know, which have got these kind of these rivalries at the centre. And the central sort of axis is that Borg is a machine, the ice Borg. He's shy of fame. He spends his evening tightening his rackets. He's devoted to rituals. And he doesn't like any form of change. McEnroe, on the other hand, goes to clubs, struts around like a rock star. He's described as Borg's worst nightmare and the worst representative of American values since Al Capone. He is, of course, played um, actually very well by Shia LaBeouf, who brings an awful lot of his own personal history to play in the role. Here's a clip. Ladies and gentlemen, John McEnroe. Uh, so, John, uh, you uh, upset anybody out in the wings yet? No, not that I know of, not yet. <laughs> no, I, I like you, John. Uh, you're great. And um, in three days... Three days. You're going to London... Yep. Uh, ...to play Wimbledon. And everyone's talking about Bjorn Borg's chance to win his fifth straight title and make tennis history. Now, apparently, uh, the only thing standing between Borg and that record is you. Mm -hmm. Here's what uh, it's saying over in London, where uh, you're hardly making any friends. Uh, John, I got to ask you, what is it that you've done to the Brits? Yeah, I don't know. (laughs) This is a different place, you know. It's a different culture, and they have warm beer, and it's just a different thing. Well, have you uh, have you got a plan to uh, get them to stop booing? I mean, I plan to go in there and play my game, and if I beat Borg in the final, it's very hard to boo me if I'm number one, so... So, Charles Buff as uh, John McEnroe, uh, Sverre Goodnesson as 
Bjorn Borg, who I keep wanting to call Born Bjorg, because what do I know about tennis? Um, and so the, the central conceit of the film is that although they appear to be fire and ice, although they appear to be completely different, actually, they're very similar. And what we see through flashback to Borg's life, because it concentrates more on Borg than it does on McEnroe, is that, in fact, he had a temper. He had an uncontrollable rage within him. And what he had to do, and it, you know, at the very beginning, what he had to do was to learn to control that. And the film's thesis is that actually he's not an iceberg at all. What he is is he's a volcano keeping everything absolutely under wraps. And what McEnroe is doing is that he is, you know, all fiery, all hot-headed. And what he has to learn to do is to, you know, is to scale it down and to somehow channel that rage into winning shot by shot. And so the film basically takes that idea that you have two characters who could not be more different. And we see lots of stuff, but news footage about the way in which, you know, one of them is absolutely loved and is handsome and everybody screams at another one is the super brat. So it's the ice Borg and the super brat. And it is true that if you remember anything about, I mean, even I, who knew nothing about tennis, remembers the not the nine o'clock news sketches about John McEnroe coming down for his breakfast and, you know, throwing his racket around and shouting, you cannot be serious. And, and a lot, in fact, one of the things in this film, there's a lot of swearing and I don't, I have no idea whether or not the swearing actually did happen on court. There's stuff about the BBC turning down the microphones because there was too much a cussing going on. I don't know whether that's true. That sounds about right. What I can tell you is that as somebody who knew nothing about the story, firstly, I thought that the characters were both played very engagingly. I mean, to the point that although it does get a bit wiggy, although John McEnroe's hair, or you know, Charlotte Buff's hair, is a little over there, and, and you know, that and Stellan Skarsgård as a Borg sort of mentor, who's the person who's taught him to rein all this stuff in, it is sometimes a story which is told through the hair. It is also a story which gives you just enough of the thumbnail details to understand who everybody is in a world from which I am completely alienated and to set up enough jeopardy and enough engagement that I found myself getting gripped. And as we move, therefore, towards the match, towards the showdown the film builds towards, I did find myself completely engaged, not least because I didn't know how it worked out. And I thought that the way in which they played the match was was done very well. And it's very difficult to play that sort of stuff to a non-sporting audience. You're trying to, it's the same as you would see when they're doing it with a film like Rush. You know, tell the audience as much as they need to know, assuming that none of them have ever watched a Formula One race. And we'll get this again when Battle of the Sexes comes up. Yes. And I mean, it's funny because when you consider the sort of checkered history of tennis movies, you know, from players to... Wimbledon. Wimbledon, that was a film. That was a film. That was indeed a film. And now suddenly we've had, because the Battle of the Sexes is coming up because there was a documentary, uh, which, you, which you enjoyed very much. In fact, we had <coughs> Billy Jean King came on the programme when we were in Edinburgh. Yeah, that, was, that, that documentary was first class. Right? Yeah. But in the case of this, I thought that considering that it plays in pretty broad strokes and considering that what it does is it does, it, it sets up its juxtapositions and its counterpoints very boldly. And then it has this central thesis, which is these two things seem completely opposite but in fact if you unpack the story they're actually the same thing it did it did that it did that well it says at the beginning that it's inspired by true events which leads me to believe that it must have taken a certain degree of liberty with the truth because that's a phrase which now you know if you say this is a true story it means it's not really a true story if you say inspired by real events it means we've made large sections of this up but all the time when I was watching it as a piece of drama, I thought it was engaging and exciting and and it's 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 a pretty simplistic central thesis, 
but it does it well. Now we get to talk about Kingsman, the Golden Circle, uh, and we'll speak in a moment to Taron Edgerton. First of all, here's a clip from the film featuring Taron as Eggsy, of course, Colin Firth as Harry Hart, and as Tequila, Channing Tatum. Y'all ain't never heard of knocking for you, Henry. Well, actually, we had an invitation, didn't we? Yeah, how did you know? Yeah, yeah, it came in the shape of a bottle. We're from the Kingsman Tailor's Shop in London. Maybe you've heard of us. Oh, the Kingsman? Yeah. Huh. That's where y'all got them fine suits and them fancy spectacles y'all got on. Exactly. That's right. Y'all look damn sharp. Let me see if I got it right here. You want me to believe that it's normal for a tailor to hack through an advanced biometric security system with nothing but a little bitty old watch on. And that's a clip from Kingsman, The Golden Circle, and one of its stars is Taron Egerton. Hello, Taron, how are you? Hi, I'm very well, thank you. Thanks, Thanks for having so, me on the show. Oh, it's, it's a pleasure to have you on. So one of its stars, I mean, the poster is, uh, is fabulous. I mean, what a great yeah. cast you've got. I mean, it's very, very surreal. It's a sequel to the movie Kingsman, The Secret Service, which was my first ever film role. Um, <laughs> it's, I, I, amazing, it's, really. it's, it's very, very strange. And now to come back... Um, Kind of, you know, as you say, on the poster, flanked by this, well, frankly, an army of incredible uh, actors, you know, award-winning actors. It's a dream come true. It's really great. I mean, I, re- I remember when we reviewed the first film. It, it is an astonishing story for you to say, and then you just said it again, that that was your first film, mm. and they were right alongside some of the biggest movie stars in the world. Here we are, second time around. Did it feel as though? Things, I mean, you've done so many good things since, but did you think, okay, this is slightly different for the second one? Um, I think in the sense of the experience of making the movie and the work that goes into the action elements of it and knowing what it is tonally and knowing the relationship with the character uh, that Colin plays, all of that, you get a sense of what's expected of the sequel, but... Um, but this time it was a far. It's a more. I think it's a more ensemble piece. There's this, you know, great cast of actors, and by no means did I feel um, like you know. I, I was. I was pretty. It was. I found it very awe inspiring. It felt awe inspiring in a different way because we had this gang of incredible yeah. American stars and British stars. Because the Colin you referred to is, of course, Colin Firth. Yes, and uh, and I remember in the when the first movie came out, you said that. Uh, he would text you and uh, he would make sure everything was fine. You yeah, know, we not, had a not, good relationship. And all, yeah. and all that kind of stuff. So he doesn't need to look after you anymore, no, does he? No, that's, that's <laughs> true. That's true. But it did have a lovely feeling of... I've never done... Well, I mean, obviously, Kingsman was my first film. I've never had the experience of making a sequel before. But it's a lovely feeling of um, kind of... Our family might be putting it a bit strongly, but, you know, familiar surroundings and people coming back together uh, after... You know what, what people, some people obviously thought was a job well done, um, and it was particularly nice being reunited with Colin. One of the first places we shot was in Italy, and uh, I went for dinner with him and his sons, who I have gotten to know a little bit. And it was just a lovely, lovely feeling to have that validation and the excitement for the future. Mm. Just remind us who the Kingsmen are for, yes. for, for folk who, who missed the first one. So they're a secret organisation and of, they're tailors basically. They operate, their front is a tailor's shop. They operate as a tailor's on Savile Row but behind closed doors they are highly trained um, tech savvy elite crime fighters who have taken it upon themselves to tackle kind of global problems and global injustices and they do so in a kind of quite sort of cavalier extreme manner without ever getting a hair out of place. And in this movie, a, se- a, a sequence of events which involves Kingsman being blown up leads us to discover that we have a sister organisation who 
are a heightened version of sort of American culture and Americana, cowboys, denim clad, Stetson wearing superheroes in the same way that we're these, this riff on English gentlemen. Yeah. Neither are particularly realistic, but it's a lot of fun. <laughs> uh, and it's, an, it's a kind of an idea that I think people the world over can buy into because it, it, it's stereotypes and it's quite fun to play with. But people who have seen the first film might be surprised that Colin Firth is in it at all. <laughs> yes, Because he was quite clearly killed he was and he's back i think it was very clear very early on that one of the things that people really really loved about the first movie was one seeing colin firth in this incredibly unlikely role of the superhero crime fighting badass ninja guy um and also i believe as well i think that what people bought into as well as all the hype and action and craziness was i think that relationship between harry and exit i think that's kind of the heart of the film the most emotionally affecting moments of the first one involved those two characters and so i think that matthew recognized and felt strongly that in order to continue the success that colin was presumably essential to the future of of the story and the franchise so So he has to live he has to live. He has to live. And so within the parameters of the film, Matthew felt that he could conceivably bring him back. And I personally feel I'll leave that to other people and Mark to evaluate whether they feel that that's far-fetched or not. I believe it really works and I believe it's to the sort of the betterment of the film. And the Matthew you're referring to is, of course, Matthew Vaughan, yes. who's, uh, who's directed this movie as well. Yes. It, how does he direct you? What's it like being on set with him how does he direct the scenes i found it's changed a lot over the two movies particularly on when it came to me i think he felt more like he had to manage me a little bit and since then like we we also did a movie called eddie the eagle together which he produced and dexter fletcher directed so we've kind of worked together constantly in some capacity over the past four years and our relationships really developed and changed in terms of him on set He's very enthusiastic and very excited, but also sort of not in the room a lot of the time in the sense that he's in his, his head. You can see he there's a face Matthew has where he sort of goes to his faraway place and dreams up these crazy ideas that, you know, only people like Matthew Vaughan or Quentin Tarantino or dream up these, these things that wouldn't occur to normal people. It's hard work. It's a very long shoot. And the level of detail and camera work that goes into it is massive. I, Matthew, I guess you might say overshoots to give himself lots of options in the edit and I think it's in the edit when he has this real palette of things that he's built that's where he's able to splice and create what he wants to create I'm guessing I, I, I don't presume to be able to demystify Matthew but and it's a very physical movie I imagine it's pretty exhausting Ma- massively so yeah but thrilling as well and very exciting you know to uh, it's like a little boy's dream really running around in these suits pretending to be something akin to superheroes I, th- I think in the first film you said that the most exhausting sequence was the underwater sequence yes and uh, which took although it was just like five minutes of the film it was like ten days ten of days filming. of shooting yeah. what in this movie it starts with a, a fairly exhausting sequence with you in a taxi that's right would that have been the, I would think that would be pretty exhausting that was, up, that was up there I actually have another underwater sequence in this film and this time it's an extension of the sequence you just referred to I'm underwater again but this time I'm sat in a taxi and seat belted in and it's quite a strange and quite scary experience you sort of sit on a stage above water level and you sit in the taxi with the seat belt on and they give you a regulator and then they submerge you into the water and on an underwater speaker they give you a moment to prepare and then they start shooting and you're essentially strapped in, you know, if you started drowning. I mean, there's a, there's a team of people there to save you, but it's still quite scary. That's nonetheless. reassuring. But it yeah. sounds that you're pushed to your limits. Yes, I would say that's fair enough. And Matthew is very, very keen on um, trying to get us to do anything that's 
physically possible or doesn't kind of go against insurance. So a lot of what you see, I would say most of what you see is, is actually me and, and, and Colin, which is great. And it's something that people find very thrilling about the film, I think. And you refer to the first film uh, as a big art house movie. I feel it is. And is this the same? Yes, I think it is. I think if anything, Matthew has taken even more license to express his idea of what a movie, a big kind of studio level potentially very commercial movie can be I think he makes movies in quite an unusual way in that they're actually financed privately by Matthew which gives him I think the final say and license to do exactly as he sees fit which is why there are moments in the movie that for some people they feel like they may go a little bit too far but I think he delights in being provocative and I think a huge portion of his audience delight in it as well but yes I think it's an art house movie in the sense that it's altered and I think there is something unique to the way he makes a film whether you like it or not and speaking of going too far uh, as you referenced it Mark uh, enjoyed the first movie uh, he made a reference to what he called leering laddish humour mm. uh, close this is the last movie yes closing on what he called an unforgivable bum note yes which uh, is very well put would you say that that tone uh, continues in this film it's downplayed it's they turned it up how would you describe uh, it? I, I'd say there's an, there's, an, there's an equivalent moment which I think will upset people in the same way and it, it really divides people. For some people, it's kind of shocking and attention-grabbing and harmless fun. And for some people, it's um, offensive and unnecessary. And, you know, some people say it lowers the tone of the film. I, for my part, I really don't have a massive opinion on it. Those aren't the moments in the film that make me excited and make me love it, because I do love the films. I think it's supposed to be taken in, in a sort of light-hearted way. But you understand why pe- some people clearly... Absolutely. And, and also, uh, you know, for my own part to sort of uh, protect myself a little bit, they aren't days on set I enter into lightly. But I have faith in Matthew and I, I'm, I'm only where I am because of him. Do you get to keep the suits? I think I could if I asked. But um, once you've spent six months sweating and running oh, around in them and having sand all over them, I'm quite, you're quite glad to see the back of them. You get terrible neck crash as well from those starch collars. So tough. <laughs> I know, so hard. First of all problems. Do you know what this film has in common with Logan Lucky, which is out at the moment, Alien Covenant, which came out a few months ago, and Free Fire, the Ben Wheatley film, which came out about six months ago? No, enlighten me. I have no idea. The music of John Denver. Right, I see. Unbelievably... Country roads. John Denver's music. Uh, when when it comes something up, something of this, a resurgence. Think it's quite astonishing. I mean, he's been gone for a long time. It's very much a kind of a seventies thing. And then when Free Fire had Annie's song, and then Alien Covenant has Take Me Home, Country Roads, and Logan Lucky does the same thing. And now it turns up in your film as well. What do you what do you attribute that to? I have, I have no absolutely idea. no idea. Maybe every, presumably it's coincidence. But Mark Strong singing John Denver. What's not to like? No, it's a great moment. And Mark sings it brilliantly as well. That's, he's got a great voice. He's got a great voice. There are no end to Mark's skills. Yeah, that's a, I really love that moment in the film, and I don't want to no. spoil anything about it, but um, I think it's one of my sort of favourite moments in the film. I love Kingsman when, it, when it kind of, it's emotionally affecting, as I believe it is at times, and, um, and that's one of the moments where I think you can get a bit caught up in it. So you've had an incredibly busy time since your first movie, since the first one, Eddie the Eagle... Uh, legend, testament of youth, sing. So you can sing. You, you and Mark could have a good sing-off. A sing-off, perhaps, yeah. I, I have always um, enjoyed singing, but it's it's only in the past kind of couple of years that it's something that I've actively pursued. Uh, I'd love to do a musical. Sing was a really fun experience. It was really great. I'm still standing. 
I'm still standing. Did you get a chance to perform that to the cast? Uh, no, not on not on this set. I did have a conversation with Elton recently about it, though, and, and gained his seal of approval, which was very reassuring. Excellent. And just tell us, if you can, anything about Robin Hood, which I think is coming next. Yes. Have yeah. You, I've, or have you done it? Or? Uh, we've, we're done. I'm very, very excited about it. It's helmed by Otto Bathurst, who was made famous by uh, the series Peaky Blinders, and tonally it has something of that atmosphere to it. It's set in the period but with a with elements of modernity um you know i guess probably 1300s but with elements of industry and ironwork and it's a very specific world with great design and and yes as i say elements of stuff that feels like it could be 20th century and in terms of the tone of it it's very dark but it's myself and jamie fox in the two lead roles so it's quite I think it, which we've tried to make it quite witty and engaging and accessible to a, to a wide audience. I'm really, really excited about it. I saw some of it recently. It's very different. It won't be an R-rated movie, but um, it's quite an, it was quite a different and a very enjoyable experience, The Kingsman. But I'm, I'm hoping for great things for it. Taryn, a, a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank, Thank you, you very, very much, indeed. Thanks for coming in. Thank you, mate. Taryn Edgerton talking about Kingsman Golden Circle. Mark has now had a full 25 minutes of no speaking uh, to recover everything that he needs to say about Kingsman. Well, the first thing is, what a lovely interview and, you know, what a lovely guest. And he was. He was charming. Didn't he come across well? And uh, so when the first Kingsman came out, um, I liked it. As you said in, in that thing, I thought that, that what it did was it took that kind of, you know, My Fair Lady idea. It was a, like a you know, sort of boisterous hoodie bond fantasia and there was this the story about um mobile phones being used to uh, you know to zombify the population and it cocked a lot of snooks at um generic predecessors and i i i thought it was you know sharp and and witty and funny with the exception of as you quite rightly quoted there that i thought it you know it had this it sort of succumbed to this leering laddish humor and ended on as you quite rightly said an unforgivable bum note and i thought it was interesting that when you said that Partly, I think Taron Egerton, because he was being gracious, just said, "Well, that's you know, that, that's that's the right way of putting it." And then when you asked him about, um, "Is there more of that in this film?" and you know, and he said, "Yes, there is," and this is how it goes. And and it's not for me to say either way. Reading between the lines, I felt that he felt the same awkwardness about that that I do because I think that that unforgivable bum note in the first film was a real misstep. Matthew Vaughan doesn't feel that. And in fact, in this film, the, the FNAF FNAF stuff is back with a vengeance in a manner which I found really, really cringeworthy. There is one scene that Taranagetan refers to in that, um, in, in that interview, which is the sort of the button pushing scene. He said, well, some people will find this, you know, just harmless and some people will find it offensive. And as I was watching it, I, I thought to myself, if Michael Bay had done this, would I forgive him? Because one of the things that I'm accused of quite a lot, and I, I think there may well be justification in this, is that I go easier on the directors that I like than on the directors that I don't like. And I have to be honest, if Michael Bay had included the scene that uh, Taron Edgerton was referring to, I would have thrown my hands up in horror. In fact, in the screening that I was in of Kingsman, I went, no. I mean, it literally said, you know. Out loud. Out loud. Um, because I just thought it was so completely misjudged. And unfortunately, it was part and parcel 
of a I mean, you know, I don't. It's not that I don't ever call directors out about this stuff. I mean, there's a, there's a scene in William Friedkin's Killer Joe, which I think is completely inappropriate. But I, you know, I told Friedkin that I thought that was the case. He said, "Well, you don't know what you're talking about, and that's absolutely fine." And um, you know, but in this particular case, much as I do think that Matthew Vaughan has interesting ideas and has made some interesting films, I just think that 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 underlying sort of smutty humour that he's tapping into is really crude in a way that is completely unforgivable and inappropriate and absolutely does the movie not only no favours, but undermines it very substantially. And if, if it had been Michael Bay, I wouldn't have forgiven him for it and I'm not going to forgive them for doing it this time. That's the first problem. The second problem is one of the best scenes in the first Kingsman was that, you know, incredible... Uh, you know, sh- church house meltdown sequence, which is just absolutely crazy. But also in that interview, you raised with Taron Egerton the thing you said, well, you know, Colin Firth is back, which is a surprise to everybody. Yes, because he was clearly extremely was dead. Comprehensively killed in the first film. Once you start bringing people back from the dead who have been quite definitively killed in yep. the first film, suddenly any sense of jeopardy, which the first film did have, goes out the window. Because he's like, oh, okay, fine. We're now at a point where it doesn't, I mean, they, as he says, they blow up the Kingsman. Well, it doesn't matter. You, you, you can apparently bring people back from the dead with a magic gel. So that takes away the sense of jeopardy. The third point is that despite what Taron Egerton said about those action sequences being physical, about them being involved in them, and which, you know, rings absolutely true in terms of the way they were made, they don't feel physical. The taxi sequence reminded me of nothing more than the night bus sequence from Harry Potter, because it yeah, felt, it felt as kind of, you know, magical as that in terms of it, it had no physical substance, no physical threat. And the Honor Majesty's Secret Service cable car stuff just unfortunately seemed plain silly. Then in terms of the, it's a film playing with stereotypes. Well, playing with stereotypes and doing something with stereotypes is more than just simply rolling out stereotypes and expecting them to be funny and engaging. Beyond that, there is a pop star cameo, which I wasn't sure whether or not was a plot spoiler, but it's, you know, everybody knows who it is, but, you know, we don't know. Well, I'm, well I mentioned it earlier that Elton John's in Elton it. Elton John's in it. And I just thought that that was a gag that would have, you could have, at a stretch, got away with once. The second time, really? The third time, oh, hang on, this isn't, this isn't a cameo gag. This is an extended joke. I'm suddenly getting visions of Piers Morgan in Entourage. Oh, my goodness. Beyond that, Julianne Moore is the villain in it. I love Julianne Moore. Julianne Moore is not good in this film. And I, you know, for Julianne Moore to not be good in something is very, very uh, surprising. And there are a number of other characters, you know, Emily Watson, in another world, she would have been the president. There's maybe people turning up because, look, looking like they had an afternoon free. So the position for me is this. I like Jane Goldman. I like Mark Miller. I mean, I don't know these people, but I like their work. Um, I like Matthew Vaughan's work and I've never met Taron Egerton, but he sounds like a really nice and intelligent guy. And I think from reading between the lines of what he was saying in some of his answers, he does understand why some of this stuff, you know, gets under people's skin. My biggest problem, however, with Kingsman, the Golden Circle, is it felt naff. Whereas the first one felt edgy and punky, this just felt naff. And... It was a disappointment trajectory that was for me, but like the difference between Kick-Ass and Kick-Ass 2, although Kick-Ass 2 was a you know, different director and everything, I really, really felt let down and disappointed by it. And all the things that bothered me in the first film were amplified, and the things that I liked about the first film just seemed to have disappeared into the ether. Um, 
Chris in London, first Kingsman film, so good. I've watched it many times with different people. Very excited to see number two. Therefore, I'm saddened to write. I was disappointed. It's not, it's not rubbish, just a bit meh. The jokes are uncomfortable, especially the Glastonbury sequence and the inclusion of the American actors, though a great move narrative and marketing-wise leads to not very much. They have a severe lack of screen time. It's a waste of Channing Tatum. I think a big problem is the first film handles the death of a Kingsman with heart and pathos, whereas in this one, that doesn't seem to be the case. Ah, Well, there we go. There we go. Taron is great, Colin is eventually great, and Elton provides loads of laughs. It's just a shame it's wrapped up in a mess of a film. I hope for the inevitable threequel. The team remember that was uh, what was great about the first Kingsman, a spy film with heart and laughs rather than this marketing exercise. Uh, apparently, that number three is kind of already... In terms of, oh, yeah, no, I, I think I have no doubt that it's going to be a, a huge success. You think so? Well, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, just already on the basis of you said it's already at number three. Uh, no, it's not at number three. What did you just say? I just said that. Oh, we're already on number three. The they're three, making the a, they're making a number. Th- I beg your pardon. No, I thought you meant on the strength of the the, the, the business that it done since opening on Wednesday. No, I'm sorry. I didn't anyway, you've done. I didn't understand, well. but I've got a head full of cold. And bearing that in mind, tell us now what is our movie? It's of a the double week. bill movie yes, of the week. It is, is on body and soul and in between. So that was so long. that was long. <laughs> How do we do? Well, we're all, we're doing okay. But I, uh, shall I do some uh, more listener reviews of Golden Circle? Yeah, you do some talking for a bit, and then we should probably just stop. What time are you on stage tonight, uh, Ali? What time are we on? Ten thirty. Ten thirty. I'll be asleep by then. Yeah, tell me, I'll be asleep by then. <laughs> and then You'll be leaning against first your thing in the morning. Channel. Plane to Strasbourg, two o'clock on stage with Billy Freakin. Hey, hey. simultaneous trans- trench translation. Are you going to do the trench translation? I'm doing the trench translation. Is that right? Basically, I'm going to say it in English, and then I'm going to say it in a comedy trench accent. I can't see anything wrong with that. No, I think it'll be fine. Is that on the Pont Neuf you're doing that? Or near no, the Pont Neuf? No, it's in Strasbourg. Oh, okay. The Stra- just re- Strasbourg is in France, isn't it? Yes. You had, to, you had to ask. You didn't know. You looked. Okay. The, the thing is... Because I'm flying into Basel, not flying into Strasbourg. My grandmother is from Basel. Well, you should know more about it. Are you going to... That's in Switzerland. Yes. Well, although it's, it's, it's in lots of different places. It's on the border. You can come out of Basel Airport into France, Switzerland, or Narnia. No, is that right? There are, yeah, different, like, literally, you come out on the wrong... You're in the wrong country. Um, do you know what my... What? what? <laughs> this is the bit where you're not supposed to be talking. Do you know what my grandmother used to speak? Uh, I would say that she spoke Dutch. No, no, she didn't speak Dutch. Okay, I would say she spoke Transylvanian. <laughs> okay, you've just been sitting there. She spoke Baseldeutsch. And Baseldeutsch is a particular... This is just another one of those questions that you throw at me, knowing that I'm not going to know the answer. Well, there's no way you would have known it was rhetorical. Okay, it was the, it was the silence that you left that made me feel as though I should join in. Tell me about Baseldeutsch then. It's a very particular dialect of German that is spoken only in Basel. He comes only from Brotigal, the Spartacus. Is that the only? Is that the only bit? That you, okay, shall I do some? That was a goon show reference, incidentally, which you just missed. Can I read this Kingsman stuff? This is the bit where you where you just sit and, and and are silent. You remember. My throat really hurts. Jordan in Paisley. 
Rarely am I so excited to see a film as I was on my way to see Kingsman Golden Circle at my local world of cine. The I first wanted was, to call it Kingsman Golden Syrup. What, the first was such a, a pleasant surprise that I had heart without being afraid to show its teeth. You can imagine my bitter disappointment then when, instead of a thrilling, edgy spy romp, I was treated to a turgid, overlong dilution of everything that made it the original long. fantastic. The it addition of the statesman and all the members therein is a huge negative. Channing Tatum's brief appearance coupled with Jeff Bridges and Julianne Moore's I had a day off, so why not level of commitment is a real step back from Sam Jackson's original villain, although he was a bit rubbish. <laughs> Where did all the laughs go? The wit of the original is replaced with vul- re- repeated vulgar sexism that really feels out of step yeah, and frankly unacceptable. Manners maketh the man indeed. Yeah. The grounded elements of Eggs' character are thrown out of the window in favour of a two-second and frankly misguided joke that concluded the original being given its own plotline is maddening. It's not all bad as Taron Egerton, Colin Firth and but Mark Strong are in fine form and in the la- later stages when it's just the three of them, some glimmer of the original's magic reappears, but only for a fleeting moment. My opinion of the film only corrodes the more I think about it. Looking bad and feeling bad. Jordan and Paisley. Uh, Robin Redding. Uh, I love the first Kingsman. That misjudged end gag aside, it was an unexpected joy with just enough roguish charm to be forgiven for its more regressive tendencies. The Golden Circle, on the other hand, is guilty of every crime it's possible for a sequel to commit. A rehash plot, a bloated cast list, cringeworthy callbacks to the first film. Jeff Bridges, Channing Tatum, Halle Berry, Julia Moore are entirely wasted in roles that feel like overcomplicated cameos. The less said about the actual cameo, the better. And the scene where Eggsy has to plant a tracker... Uh, plays out like the fantasy of a particularly unsophisticated 13-year-old boy. Yes, it does. The whole statesman plot feels like it was shoehorned in to distill product placement money out of a certain distillery and made the film's weirdly puritanical drugs are bad closing message even more baffling. Eggsy said at the end of The First Kingsman, this ain't that kind of movie, bruv. Unfortunately, The Golden Circle is very much that kind of sequel. Very well played. Uh, And one more, Luke Stewart in Greenock. Luke Stewart, aged 18, in Greenock. Uh, being a massive fan of the first Kingsman film, high hopes, you didn't notice there's a trend with Did these Did you get corrected emails. in your headphones? Yeah. <laughs> uh, high hopes this evening, I attended my nearest multiplex uh, to see Kingsman Golden Circle. Uh, praying to see all the originality, wit and fun repeated once more. It's important to preface by saying I did really enjoy Kingsman 2. Okay. However, it suffers heavily from being rather overwritten. Jane Goldman and Matthew Vaughan try to introduce so many new ideas that the film's lengthy running time is spread thin at one, uh, and at one point the plot stops altogether. The attempt to follow the industry's current bigger and better attitude hurts the film's charm so much uh, is introduced with uh, little time to be explored. Excuse me. Fill the gap. One, <coughs> two, three, four. Five. That's fine. The, the end is also very cheap and seems to abandon an interesting character point raised early in the film. Anyway, Kingsman 2 maintains the humour the action, and thankfully the fun of the original. And other than a few pacing issues, for the most part, its two-hour, 20-minute run flies by. Despite their mishandling, most of the concepts introduced are really interesting with strong performances all round. Mark Strong's Fife accent never fails to charm me. (laughs) Luke and Greeno. So there's a kind of a theme which is really like the first one. So maybe it will be as hugely successful. That's the first one. Well, apparently all the tracking projections are that it's going to, you know, take a load of money, but... 
Well, who knows? Well, who does indeed know anything? Yeah. Um, and before Mark dies on air, <laughs> thank you. I think it's time to do a DVD of the week. Should we do that? Yes. I think we are. It's too late because we can meet the bride. That is true. Bridal music. Bridal music. Georgia. Hello, sir. Can I interest you in this Excalibur 2000? Lovely little runner. <laughs> only very minor rust, very low mileage. One lady owner who only used to go to the shops. And, of course, you can rest easy with King Arthur Daly's famous cast-iron three-month guarantee. I'll even knock 200 quid off if you promise not to tell the good lady Guinevere her indoors. <laughs> Classic quote from King Arthur Daly, Legend of the Forecourt, which is a contender for DVD of the week. So, what are you going to pop down to your local video store for, and what might Mark pick? Jonathan Darwin. I haven't seen any of the movies on this week's list, which is crazy for me as a massive movie fan, so I'm disappointed and ashamed of my own behaviour. However, I've heard Mark banging on about The Red Turtle so much that despite the inclusion of King Arthur, which I know he raved about, Mark's pick is going to have to be the animated turtle movie that he, we know he loves so much. Stephen Wilson suspect Mark's going to go for The Red Turtle, but the third story in Certain Women is amongst the best 20, uh, 20 minutes of cinema all year. Keith Barrett, the legend of The Holy Drinker, has a fantastic performance from Rutger Hauer. Daniel Phillips, I think Mark's going to go for Red Turtle, but the 1958 original of Dunkirk would also be appropriate. And Sean Atkinson, Red Turtle's too obvious. Song to a song. So a song to song was really interesting. Flew oh, under the radar of most, I think. So what is our DVD of the week? Well, of course it's Red Turtle because it's one of my favourite films of recent years and I, I just think Michael the Doctor did absolutely brilliantly with it. I love that film. It's a wordless story about a guy who washes up on a desert island and then magic starts to happen it's breathtaking and heartbreaking and beautiful and it's a studio ghibli co-production i think their first you know so overseen from japan filmed in belgium and france made by a dutch animator working in the uk living in the uk it's absolutely beautiful however it's also worth pointing out yes dunkirk the original dunkirk uh is actually very good and uh, i watched that when the chris nolan came out Song to song is utter, 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 utter pants. And uh, somebody should speak very sternly to Terence Malick about that. Are you done? Yes. So it's definitely The Red Turtle. It is definitely. It's our DVD of the week. So I'm just going to do this and then we're going to finish. All right? Go on. Uh, It's from Louisa Moore. Right. Do you want to say hello to her? Hello, Louisa Moore. What, sorry, what, what did I not do? Am I not? No, you just need to say hello to her. Hello, Louisa Moore. Writing this in as I listened oh. to last week's podcast. What? No, no, go and carry on. I've got Have you forgotten something? I've got hello to say as well. I've just remembered to carry on, but I'll do we it. We haven't said... Yes, Jason. Hello to Jason. We haven't said for ages. He's about to... Star, Star Trek's about to be... It's about to come out. Okay, can I say hello to Simon Allen? Um, and... Uh, yes, hello to Simon Allen. There we go, Jane. I did. I, it? it was a last-minute request for me to say hello to Simon Allen. Who's Simon Allen? I've got. He's, he's a friend of a friend. Oh, but I've just you've just remembered to do it, so that's great. Hello, Simon Allen. Yes. Yes. Fine. Even though Carry on. Louisa Moore, writing this in as I listened to last week's podcast, I want. I must ask you to reprimand my dad, David Moore, who drove me to university last Saturday, but refused to listen to the podcast he downloaded, as he wanted to listen to it on, the on way, his own on his way back home. Yes. Good. Beg your pardon. You did cut both the microphones at that time. David, what, what, yeah, what, what happens is, 
I have a cough button and I have a talkback button. Yeah. So the cough button just cuts me out, but not your mic. Yes. The talkback button, which goes straight through to our production team, yeah. cuts everything. Cut. So I could be talking. You can hear it. So when I coughed into the talkback button, yeah. cutting phones like that, it meant that they got the full cough action in their Full headphone. cough action. Very good. Anyway. David, who wanted to listen to it on his way home, yeah. is an LTL and went to a fancy dress party as a minion a couple of years ago. Excellent. And he still loves his fart gun. <laughs> After listening to all the other student parent witted trainees who enjoyed your programme on their journey, I feel as if I've missed out on a key church of wittertainment rite of passage. There will hopefully be another opportunity for this ritual to take place. And I ask you to instruct him to pick his favourite programmes for the next trip. All the best from an MTL, so I still find the jokes funny. Louisa Moore, if you could send him a what's up. All right. So, David Moore, what's up with your bad self? And it's a joint experience. Don't be selfish. Share the joy. Share the pleasure. You've gone all Radio 4. No, this is... Um, they do that in Radio 4. They go, and now... The shipping forecast. No, they go, and now... Now what? Shush, they go, and now the shipping forecast. Do they? Yeah, huge. Honestly, gaps on Radio 4 that you could drive a bus through. They're allowed to do that. On Radio 3, they're allowed to let a piece of classical music end, and you think the radio has stopped working. Well, what we should do then is we should reintroduce our own big old gap at the end of this podcast. Mm. How long do you think we're going to leave it? But then we can't do shouty bit because we neither of us neither of us have the vocal capacity to do that. Okay. So you're saying it's a bad idea? No, we could do whispery bit. Okay, we could we'll do, do a leave a long gap. A long gap and then a whispery bit. And then a whispery okay. bit. Thank you very much indeed for listening. Don't forget Donald Gleason and uh Margot Robbie on next week's show. Your voice sounds quite attractive like that. Thank you very much. See you next week. Not that attractive though. You've got handkerchief.